Have you ever noticed how all music from the 1980s sounds the same? It's not real instruments being played, right? Synthesizers, drum machines, etc. But there is a bubbliness to the 1980s right across the board. And how fortunate are we as we begin the show today with this song from 40 years ago. Actually, it would have been released in 83. But on this day, 40 years ago, in 1984, Cindy Lauper became the first female recording artist since Bobby Gentry in 1967 to be nominated for not one, not two or three, but five Grammy Awards. Album of the Year, Best New Artist, Best Pop, Vocal Performance by a Female, Record of the Year, and Song of the Year. All five of those Grammy nominations for Cyndi Lauper announced on this day, January the 10th in 1984. Fun fact on that particular song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. WWF wrestler, and I know, I know, it's WWE today for all you wrestling fans because apparently the environmental charity is stronger than, what's his face there? Devin, help me out here. The guy, uh, the the wrestling guy, you know. Dwayne The Rock Johnson? No, not that wrestling guy. The guy, the the commissioner, the big guy. Oh, why am I blanking on his name? You know his name, too. I'm blanking on it, too. Okay, you Google, I'll talk. What the heck? Oh, I can see his face. Vince McMahon. Goodness. Why do I even bother starting the show? Can I start the show at 10.07? Holy Hannah Farwell, put your brain in gear. Anyway, yes, the, the environmental charity, WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, is stronger than Vince McMahon. Uh, I was getting to the wrestler, Captain Lou Albano, who played Cindy Lauper's dad in the video for Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And even as we play some bubbly, poppy, uplifting music on this Wednesday morning in early January, there is indeed, I heard Christine Clark mention it, just a sliver, just a wee sliver of sunshine peeking through the otherwise gray skies, which have been otherwise gray on all but one day since December 21st. Oh, we are having ourselves a time, aren't we? We are having ourselves a time when it comes to the kind of weather that we've been enduring. And lucky for us, we get to have a little bit more snow uh, by the end of the week and into the weekend. You know how they say that no good deed goes unpunished? I lived that personally yesterday afternoon. So as I'm leaving work, I'm texting my beloved to let her know I'm on my way home. She says, I have to go out. Can you please park your car on the road? Because she doesn't like driving my car. I'm like, no problem. Get home, putting my car on the road, getting out of the car. And I see down at the far end of the street, the snow plow. I'm like, okay, I know it's not a snow event day, but I'm not going to be that guy. I know what the snowplow's job is, and I know that vehicles parked on the road get in the way of the snowplow and makes it more difficult than it needs to be for that snowplow operator. So I quickly just run my bags inside, go back outside, move my car. And I'm waiting in a neighbor's driveway so I can just pull back onto the street once the plow has passed by. 
And as I'm watching the plow come down the street, I'm like, sweet. Like, it's not leaving a lot of stuff at the end of the driveway. So it's not going to create a whole lot of extra work now that I'm home to do some of that work. Then I realized the reason it's not leaving a lot at the end of every driveway is because the snow is thick and it's wet and the blade of the snowplow is almost just gathering all of it up. So most driveways didn't get anything. But what happens is as that snow gathers up on the blade of the snowplow, eventually it's got to roll off or slide off. And when it does, it's this massive chunk, right? Or chunks, as the case was at the end of my driveway. I'm not even making this up. I'm watching the plow come all the way down the street and there's like nothing at the end of driveways. But I can see the big snowball. It's like rolling a snowball to start a snowman, right? I can see it forming. I can see it forming. Gets to my place and it rolls off the blade. And there I was with two massive chunks of snow. Wet, thick, heavy snow right at the end of my driveway. Perfect. If I had left my car parked on the road... Snowplow driver would have had to swerve around my car and I would not have been left with those big chunks of snow. Not the snowplow operator's fault. I wasn't going to shake my fist at him or call him names. It was just the luck of the draw on my driveway. But this thing, and I know, I know I am not gifted with great height. I understand that. But I kid you not, it came up to my waist. (laughs) And I moved it like I was trying to move a snowman, right? Start that snowball again, except I had to chop it in half first because I ain't that strong. I'm not that tall. I'm not that strong. We got it cleared away. Snowplow operator did his job. But the next time you think of being that good person and getting out of the way of the snowplow, remember, no good deed goes unpunished. All right. Last night, as you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs played. And as is almost always the case, the morning after, the night before when there was a Leaf game, We get to have a little fun, don't we? A.M. on A.M. in the A.M., baby. Oh, wait a minute. That's my fault. I I did this before. Oh, I'm so sorry. I am really off to a bad start today. A.M. on A.M. in the A.M. Nylander to the far side, a centering pass, and a quick shot. Scores! Matthews from almost along the goal line. A give and go, and Austin Matthews has his ninth power play goal and his 31st goal of the season and the Leafs own a 2-0 lead. Devin Robertson, the guy on the other side of the glass, pop quiz for you. Just I'm putting you on the spot. It's like coming to school on a Monday and the teacher you like the least says, hey, guess what? You're getting a surprise quiz today. 31 goals for Austin Matthews of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Who in the National Hockey League, Devin Robertson, has 31 goals besides Austin Matthews. <laughs> uh, can I say no one? Yes, you can. Okay, I'm going to go with that. And you would be absolutely right, my friend. <laughs> you, you know why? <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because Austin Matthews is the best hockey player in the world today. <laughs> That's why. 31 goals for Austin Matthews. And the Leafs win last night 7-1. to one. I, I want to go back to something that came up on the show yesterday and I mentioned this with Christine Clark just before nine when I was in as part of the all news morning show to tell you what's coming up on this show today 
and and I meant what I said. I I carry the conversations that we have for better or for worse with me through the day sometimes. And I was I was wrestling with the conversation I had with Terry during the twelve o'clock talk back yesterday, and and mostly my frustration was. I can't sit here and break down the Leafs' salary cap implications for you on this show. I just didn't think that's that was the purpose of of our time here, right? But then I realized, you know what? It, it's the twelve o'clock talk back, and you get to talk about whatever you want, and and I'm I'm here for the conversation. So I mean, we did we did talk about it for five and a half minutes. I think that was plenty of time. But by the end, I was I was pretty frustrated. I'm like, what do you want me to do about it? Like, I, I don't know what you want me to do about it. But but Terry's underlying point, I think, was twofold. One, and I hope I'm not putting words in Terry's mouth here, but but one was, it it's not a recipe for success, right? When you are paying only five players on the Maple Leafs, William Nylander, Austin Matthews, uh, Mitch Marner, John Tavares, Morgan Riley, 60% of your overall salary cap. Like, how are you going to pay the rest of the players to, to create a team that's going to be successful? So Terry didn't think this was the best way of doing business. And he also suggested that maybe, just maybe, the Toronto Maple Leafs and their management didn't care about winning as much as, you know, making money, which they do hand over fist. And I, I couldn't help but think about this last night, because if you watch the game or listen to the game, you know that there were a whole heck of a lot of real pretty goals scored by the Maple Leafs last night. Their brand of hockey is entertaining as H-E double hockey sticks. Like, what else would you rather do with a Tuesday night in January, right? They are putting on a show. They're the greatest show on ice right now. So maybe Terry was right. Maybe maybe they just look at this team as entertainment value. And when they've got William Nylander locked up for another eight years and the greatest player in the world playing for them right now in Austin Matthews and they've got Mitch Martin, they've got all these players who are so highly skilled, they just entertain the bejeepers out of you. And who cares if they ever win a darn thing outside the regular season? Did you go out for the night and have a good time? Yes, End of the story. That is one heck of a business model. Maybe Terry was right after all. <laughs> it is 916. And it is time for your Farwell Show Five Things to Keep in Mind for this day. Kitchener Rangers General Manager Mike McKenzie has pulled off a big trade with the Barry Colts, acquiring NHL first round pick Edward Chalet and defenseman Olivier Savard in exchange for Kitchener natives Kyle Morey and Blair Scott, along with eight, count them, eight draft picks. Uh, That winter storm that blew through here yesterday, now making its way east, up to 40 centimeters of snow expected in the Quebec uh, Gaspé region today. Another 25 centimeters could fall in northern New Brunswick. Meantime, out west, Peace River in northeast British Columbia, Expecting wind chill values today of minus 50. 5 May I never feel that temperature in my life. Number three on the Farwell Show, five things to keep in mind for today. A Saskatchewan judge is going to hear a legal challenge today to a new law that requires parental consent when children under 16 want to change their names or pronouns at school. Number four, in an effort to prevent abuse by parents 
and some coaches, a minor soccer association in Quebec's eastern townships plans to equip referees with body cameras next season. And number five on your Farwell Show, five things you might want to keep in mind for today. In the past two months, there have been 38 people, 38 people in our region hit by vehicles. It is 918, and I just wanted to touch a little bit more on that piece about the number of pedestrian vehicle collisions in this community, because that is a concerning number since November, right? Basically two months and a bit, two and a half months now, we'll call it. And we talked about this yesterday with Staff Sergeant Scott Griffiths of Regional Police, who was in studio with us. Louisa D'Amato's got a really good column in today's paper. And she talks about a couple of things that uh, that really strike me and stand out to me. Number one is, and I don't think there's any denying or disputing this, we have built ourselves a community where the car is king. Everything that we have done roads-wise is in an effort to maximize the throughput of vehicles. It's really that simple. That's the way we built this community. I'm not saying there is a complete absence of trails and multi-use trails and different things to help us get around in an active transportation manner or anything like that. But when we first designed it, like we're kind of playing catch up in that regard, right? We have designed this place with the car in mind. The other thing that Louisa points out in her column today in the Waterloo Region Record is that the penalties associated with being the driver of the vehicle that strikes a pedestrian can be like pitifully low. We're talking like, you know, if you fail to yield, for example, and there aren't serious injuries, 110 to 300 and something dollars. Like that's, that's sending a pretty significant message, isn't it? Where if you strike a person crossing the street because you failed to yield the right of way, and they're not seriously injured, but you were still at fault as the driver. A couple to a few hundred bucks, that's sending a, a pretty weak message. So I, I think she's on to something there too. But I would also add to this, because Louisa also documented in her column that she had a near miss just the other day while walking to work. And a taxi almost struck her as she was crossing the road. You know what? I've said this before. I walk a lot, like a lot, a lot. And just the other day... Out with the dog, there was a vehicle pulling out of an apartment uh, building parking lot. And me and Rosie, the pandemic pup, I'm not going to say almost got hit. We could call it a near miss because this driver's eyes was looking directly left and we were coming from the right. And this driver was like just puttering. I don't think the foot was even on the gas, just rolling out of the parking lot to the roadway, but did not look our way. And I, I held up because I realized this this guy is not stopping. I, I shouted at him, hey, hey, hey. And then he turned my way and looked and realized, and I let him go. And he pulled out in the street, and then he put down his window, and he said he was sorry. I'm like, uh-huh, I'm glad you're sorry, but that could have been a lot worse. But my point in that is I was also paying attention. Is it a perfect world? No. But are there thousands and thousands and thousands of us every day out on the road trying to get from point A to point B? Yes. And each of us bears responsibility. So I could get all frustrated by the quote-unquote near miss, or I could recognize, hey, when I'm out there, 
I'm with thousands and thousands of others who are also out there trying to do their thing, and it's up to me to be very careful of my surroundings as well. Just a thought, and maybe you've got one too, about all of these pedestrian vehicle collisions of late. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Like, do the computers just wait till the show starts to start slowing down? Hey, uh, computer, busy show for busy people. Busy, that's what my boss used to say, snapping his fingers all the time. Hey, Farwell, busy show for busy people. Computers, try to keep up, okay? We're moving around here. <laughs> 926, four minutes away from your update in the City News Center. And time always to talk to you on the show. George on the phone with us. Morning, George. Yeah, good morning, Mike. I'm hearing what you're saying. You're right on about the fines could be increased. We need to be more careful. But I'm down here in Cambridge, like you know, and those four people you heard got hit down here on Pine Book, on Stoka. What I'm finding, um, Mike, when I'm driving around at night, people are wearing dark colors, black coats, black pants, black shoes. I've come close a few times. I'm looking. So it really scares me that in the dark, dark clothing, you really have to be that extra careful. That's all I want to say. George, I appreciate that. And I agree with you. You do have to be that extra. You have to take extra care, especially in the dark. Here's the thing, though. I'm not changing my wardrobe just to make your life easier as a driver. I will, though, when I'm stepping out onto the street regardless of whether or not I have the right of way, I'm going to take a quick check. I'm going to look left. I'm going to look right. I'm going to make sure it's a safe place for me to cross. Scott, good morning. I agree with you wholeheartedly on the fines and being more careful, but that goes two ways. And the other way is with pedestrians. Number one is my biggest pet peeve is that like the yellow light or the flashing light on the don't walk sign, it says stop. It doesn't mean it means get out of the way, clear the zone. It doesn't mean start your walk across the street. That is one of my biggest pet peeves because people are like, oh, well, I'll just get across. I'll meander across the street. Worst area is Waterloo. These kids have their heads in their phones, their, their earbuds in. They're not paying attention at all. Scott, I appreciate the call. I hear you, and I agree with you. It does go both ways. Let's increase the penalties for the at-fault individual, be it the driver or the pedestrian. It it cuts both ways, in my opinion. I agree with you on that. And let's also just take this as a momentary reminder that, hey, it is a lot darker, a lot longer every day now. We all have to really take care of out there on the roads. An update from the City News Center is coming up, and then let's talk about welfare rates, shall we? Would you believe they're well below today than they were even in 1995 when former Premier Mike Harris made all of those cuts? That conversation coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. I think it would be fair to say that when we talk about provincial politics, 
really at any time and in any capacity, it's incredibly common to hear the phrase or something along the lines of, since the Harris cuts. If you go back to what was known as the common sense revolution, it began in 1995 when Mike Harris was elected premier, a conservative premier replacing Bob Ray, who had been our NDP premier for the five years prior. And, of course, the famous legacy of Bob Ray's time as premier was Ray days, and the NDP have not returned to power in this province since. But that notwithstanding, Mike Harris comes to power in 1995, is re-elected in 1999, and this quote-unquote common-sense revolution led to significant cuts in many sectors. Education, healthcare goes on and on from there. And so many times we invoke those Harris years and those Harris cuts when we are talking about provincial politics. In this case, we're taking a look at welfare rates. And, and would you believe that the rates of welfare today in Ontario are somehow, some way below even what they were when those Harris cuts began back in 1995. John Stapleton is a 28-year employee of the Ontario government's Ministry of Community and Social Services and joins us to talk about it. John, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How on earth did we get here some 30 years later and welfare rates actually now $200 less than they were in 1995. Yeah, speaking in real terms, of course. Of course. Uh, the, the welfare rate that Mike Harris cut, the single rate, to $520 a month back in October of 1995. And if you simply use the Bank of Canada's inflation calculator, that rate would now be $940 per month. But the reality is that it's $733 a month. So when we start to look at how did that happen, we've got to remember that Mike Harris and Ernie Eves, uh, both as premiers, did not increase any welfare rates or disability rates uh, from the time they were in from 1995 to 2003. And inflation during that period was a little over 17%. Then the Liberals who were in from 2003 to 2018, inclusive including some uh, majority governments, uh, made up about one quarter of the Harris cuts. And uh, so that meant that the rates were continuing to, to uh, they're just keeping up with inflation barely. But then when uh, Doug Ford got, got in, um, there was... Uh, he has made no increase, although he's indexed the ODSP or disability rights, um, he hasn't increased the Ontario works rates at all. And, of course, the inflation rate, which we've got a little bit of a dose of inflation over the last couple of years, we note that he's there's another 18% fall there. So you put it all together, and the rate, instead of being 940, which was the Harris benchmark, so even if you agreed with Mike Harris in 1995 that that's what should have happened, you'd still be far below that because uh, because of an inflation and inattention to the realities that people face when they're on assistance. It seems to me, John, that it would be fair to say that we have just not made these programs and the folks who rely on them 
a priority in our budgets. Would that be fair? Yeah, it's fair. I mean, the people who receive uh, welfare benefits generally don't like the programs, and you can—I mean, welfare programs do not get you out of poverty; they keep you in poverty. And I think that's also why the people who deliver the programs, the workers, seem so frustrated. And of course, you know, the uh, general public—if uh, you ask the general public, what do you think of a guaranteed annual income or a basic income? They like the idea. But if you tell them, oh, well, that would mean doubling welfare rates, what do you think of that? And they say, oh, we don't want that. So there's a real disconnect between what um, what people think you ought to do to get out of poverty and what, what would be a good idea. And then as soon as you bring it anywhere near the topic of welfare, uh, it becomes um, immediately unpopular. The, the idea that these welfare rates, as you've just pointed out, John, do not get you out of poverty – they keep you in poverty. The prevailing theory around that is that there's supposed to be some kind of incentive, right? We don't want to make it too comfortable to be receiving social assistance because we want you to strive for better. Yeah, and I mean, right now, the system is absolutely awash in incentives. Full-time minimum wage is at 16.55 an hour full time full year and you're you're making over $30,000 a year but the welfare rate of course is somewhere near 10,000 so there's a massive incentives yet so if people are still on these programs we have to think about well why are they there and uh the uh, point that I keep trying to make is that they're paid so little they don't have enough for food. They can't buy a cell phone. They can't get a transit pass. And and if you're in that kind of predicament where you're headed to food banks uh, and food programs all the time, you're not going to be – the reality is you're not going to be all that attractive to employers, and you're not going to have the skills. And uh, basically, if you just fall behind that much, the spur of poverty is not going to suddenly make you job ready and, and able to take on the work that employers are uh, – or the people that employers are looking to fill their jobs. So what is the answer here then, John? I think the answer is I I know that the political parties, the uh, opposition parties are talking about doubling the rates. And I, I don't think I think the design of welfare programs is wrong. I think we need to take the shackles off it. You know, when you talk to people, and I've been in many focus groups where they just ask ordinary Canadians, hey, uh, what would you do to get out of poverty? And they say, well, get help from your family, get a job, get training, uh, build up your bank account, bunk in with other people, etc. Those are all the things that ordinary Canadians think would get you out of poverty, and I think we ought to allow that to happen. But our welfare programs actually mitigate against that because people have huge clawbacks when they start to work. They can't take the training programs that they're actually eligible for because they're put into uh, workforce development schemes. They uh, can't get help from their families except for a small amount, and then they get cut. And if they bunk in with somebody else, guess what? They cut the rates. So it's the design of the programs themselves, which really, you know, are a holdover from the 30s that we really need to revamp the whole thing. And that's why I think basic income and guaranteed income become so popular in some quarters. You kind of read my mind on that score, because if we're going to take the shackles off and maybe just do away with these myriad programs that we have, we could replace it with something universal like you just touched on. 
Yeah, I think so. And I don't think it would be all that costly. I mean, what people really worried about in the 90s is that, uh, uh, as some, some circles call it welfare dependency, uh, we generally had about 5% of people on assistance in, in, you know, in the post-war period, you know, going over 60, 70 years. Uh, but during the 90s, it went up to 12 and 13%. But we had minimum wages that were way, way too low. It completely got out of whack. And we also had uh, duration of employment above 10%, you know, for four or five years. And so I think what happened is it spooked people and people like Harris got in and see these expenditures that built up through Peterson and Ray and said, hey, we got to do something about it. But instead of uh, changing the programs to make make them work and like take the shackles off, as we've said, they uh, they cut the rates, and that really that that really didn't solve anything. All it does is put people into abject poverty. Speaking of expenditures, of course, you know as well as I that we here in Ontario are carrying the largest subnational debt in the world, and interest payments alone are really burdensome for us. How would we afford a change to what we're doing in welfare in Ontario? Well, what we're affording now, the cost of poverty, the cost of keeping people uh, down the way way we do was, uh, you know, that we got 160,000 single people in Ontario uh, receiving, uh, receiving welfare benefits. And again, if we if if we were able to just uh, look at how much that costs us in terms of having that that amount of people not in the uh, not as taxpayers, not working, it's when there's all kinds of jobs, as the premier says. If we just designed our programs right, uh, we'd be able to. Uh, you know, I think they would cost less. I think the cost that we have now are, is is the burden, and we should look at it a different way and look at a wider balance sheet here because we're uh, keeping people down is is not it doesn't save money; it costs money. John, I really appreciate the uh, op-ed that you wrote and the time you've given us on the show today. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much, Mike. John Stapleton uh, spent 28 years working for the Ontario government's Ministry of Community and Social Services. And in that role, he was focused on the areas of social assistance policy and operations. And yes, we have to remember it's in real dollars, but welfare rates today are now $200 per month below the Harris Cuts, the infamous Harris Cuts of 1995. If you were to just take what the rates had been lowered to when Mike Harris was Premier, which was $520 a month, that was, by the way, a 21.6% drop. But even if you had just indexed those rates, and we know that Premier Ford has on ODSP, but not, so that's Ontario Disability Support Payments, but he's not indexed Ontario Works. I think I have that right. It's, it's one or the other, but that will be indexed to inflation moving forward. So, and I, I, I applaud that policy. I do. There was a lot of talk coming into the 2022 election about doubling ODSP and OW rates. Didn't happen, but there is now indexing on the one of them. So if you take that $520 a month from a way back in October of 1995 and merely 
indexed it to inflation, the payment would be $940 a month, which is just over $200 higher than what somebody on Ontario Works is getting today, and that's $733 a month. These are really difficult conversations. I'll tell you where I agree with John. I I really think that the cost of keeping people in poverty is greater than would be the cost of helping people get out. I, I believe that sincerely because there are so many other aspects and pressures on our safety nets that come into play if somebody's living in poverty, right? What's their overall health like? What's their mental health like? So physical and mental health absolutely come into play. Nutrition, etc. all of these things will impact somebody's overall physical and mental health if we're not providing them enough to get by on. And $733 a month, I think we can all agree that that's not getting you anywhere. Not to mention then, when you try to do something like find... Um, cooperative living, you're you're sharing an apartment, whatever the case may be, then the clawbacks start coming in, making it that much more difficult to get ahead. And if your biggest worry is just your next meal or your shared rent payment, where do you find the energy to go out there and pound the pavement to get the job that you need to have? So I really do think that John is right in that regard, that the cost of keeping people in poverty is likely greater than the cost of lifting them out of it. The other piece where I really have a hard time with this is along the lines of what I just talked about. When you are trying to survive on so little, right? You might not have a permanent address. You might not know where your next meal is coming from. You're you're not sure where you're going to sleep that night whatever the case may be. I, I don't know how you you put together the jam, quite frankly, to go out there and look for meaningful work. That's got to be a tall order. So I have a hard time here. And then, of course, you've got the other side of the equation, and I brought this up with John, because we know what the debt is in Ontario. Heck, we know what the debt is in Canada and how much we pay to service that debt and how much a universal income program would cost to implement and fund. And Doug Ford recently, in a speech at the Empire Club in Toronto, said, and I'll quote, what drives me crazy is people on Ontario Works, probably three, 400,000 that are healthy. It really bothers me that we have healthy people sitting at home collecting your hard-earned dollars. We need to encourage them to contribute back to the province and find gainful employment. So is it the carrot stick sort of thing, the carrot versus the stick? And the stick here is we're only giving you this much so we can incentivize you to get out there and find that gainful employment that the Premier talks about. To me, it sounds like a double-edged sword. I, I wish I had an easy answer to it, but maybe you know more than I do. Maybe you've got the answer we're looking for here. 519-570-2545, star 570 1-800-570-5715. Brian, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Good. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. 
Awesome. Um, I think both the ODSP and the Ontario Works finances, I mean, it would be great if we could see some increases to those rates, but it's really, until we solve, to me anyways, until we solve the housing crisis, it's, it's neither here nor there because we've still made it impossible for even people who are working full-time at minimum wage to afford basic, and when I say basic, I mean the lowest possible rent that's available, basic accommodations for living. I mean, they've increased the ODSP amount, which is great. Uh, They increased um, the amount that people can earn while they're on ODSP, which is even better. It used to be that you got, you know, I think it was $940 a month, but you could only earn $250 a month. Every dollar that you made above $250 working, they clawed back off your ODSP. Now, people on ODSP are able to earn up to $1,000 a month, which I think is better. It gives people incentive to work because they can keep more of the money that they earn and more of their disability amount. They haven't done that with Ontario Works. The rates are the same as they ever would. But, I mean, how do we, how do we, until we solve the housing crisis, how do we expect somebody who's earning under $1,000 a month on social assistance to be able to afford rent anywhere? It used to be that you could go rent an apartment, a basement apartment, a, a, a smaller place for 500 bucks a month, $450 a month. That doesn't exist anymore. Even a basement apartment, you're talking 1500 a month. I, I know people who are renting out a room in their home for $1,500 a month. So they've made it prohibitive. And to talk about social assistance, it's just it seems like a null, and, null point because until we solve the housing crisis, these people are, are handcuffed. It's an excellent point, Brian, and you articulated very well. I, I appreciate that call and the analysis. And I, I might be inclined to say, I mean, these are connected without question, right? The housing crisis and welfare rates being so low that you can't even compete in the current market. But you solve one first, maybe that's what Brian's talking about. We've got to solve the housing crisis before we can solve anything else. We'll take a break, come back with more of your calls on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. I think of a guaranteed annual income or a basic income. They like the idea, but if you tell them, oh, well, that would mean doubling welfare rates, what do you think of that? And they say, oh, we don't want that. So there's a real disconnect between what people think you ought to do to get out of poverty and what would be a good idea. And then as soon as you bring it anywhere near the topic of welfare, it becomes immediately unpopular. John Stapleton spent 28 years with the Ontario government's Ministry of Community and Social Services. He talks to us this morning about welfare rates in real dollars now being $200 less than they were following Mike Harris's cuts back in 1995. And he also hints in that clip at this idea of a universal basic income or a guaranteed income, which is an idea that is gaining traction to be sure. Back to the phones. Mary, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I am wonderful. Good. I'm biking to San Antonio right now. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, this is a very sad story, and um, I think by what uh, Premier Ford said, he's, he's trying to paint these people 
as lazy people. Okay, once in a blue moon you might get one that, you know, messes the system. But 99% of them really are in trouble. They need a hand up, not a push down. And you you look at $700. They took away all the cheap apartments downtown down Kitchener that they were living in. Remember? They I, I do remember, Mary. They sure did. And I got to run to get to a news update, so I'm going to let you go on that point. But I love what you said. They need a hand up, not a push down. An update from the City News Centre, and then let's talk about Kitchener Council's decision to appoint a new member rather than letting us vote in a by-election. That's coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Providing the latest trending stories. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. And Rogers TV Cable 20. Looking back at the election in 2022, the big risk in appointing the runner-up is oftentimes the person that wins has very, very different political views. You know, I have like a right-wing person that wins and then a left-wing person that comes in second. And appointing that second person, in my mind, when that happens, is pretty anti-democratic. So to start off, that's not the case here. The other major issue that I'm going with personally, the appointment, is the election was phenomenally close. The winner, Ashton Clancy, had 36% of the vote in the ward, whereas the runner-up, Stephanie Stretch, had uh, 34%. And after that, it dropped off quite a bit. The Mike Farwell Show continues on City News 570 and Rogers TV Cable 20. And that is Kitchener City Councillor for Ward 1, Scott Davey, who joined us on the show Monday morning ahead of Council's discussion about how to go about filling a vacancy in Ward 10. That vacancy, of course, became such because the previous Ward 10 councillor, Ashlyn Clancy, threw her hat into the provincial political ring, was successful, thereby leaving her seat on Kitchener Council to go take a seat at the legislature in Queen's Park. So, Council decided, Kitchener Council did, to appoint the runner-up from the Ward 10 general election back in October of 2022. Of course, they had the option of spending about $90,000 and conducting a by-election instead. They also had options of appointing a member of their own choosing or inviting applications from the community. What council instead decided to do, and you heard some of the reasons for it in that clip from Scott Davey, is to appoint the runner-up from the last election. Peter Wollstonecroft is a professor emeritus of political science from the University of Waterloo, joins us to chat about it. Mr. Wollstonecroft, good morning, sir. Good morning, Mike. Are you comfortable with an appointment over a by-election, generally speaking? Not at all. Uh, I'm, I believe in the importance of representative democracy, so that means elections. In, uh, in my opinion, it's too easy for people to find reasons not to have an election. And Mr. Davey just exemplified the point that I, I make. Uh, he claims that the candidates are very similar in their views. Well, my 10-year-old grandson, <clears throat> excuse me, um, last election looked at all my pamphlets that I had collected from the various candidates in Waterloo and Kitchener, and I asked him what he thought of them. His answer was, they all sound the same. That's from a 10-year-old. And he was quite right. There was perhaps one who was uh, different. 
Um, so that doesn't tell you anything. And then when you do the numbers, as Mr. Davey does, I, the question is, well, what, what would make it not possible to, to appoint somebody? Um, so what? Uh, the fact is somebody won and other people lost. So why would you put the person who didn't win into the seat? We're talking about representative democracy, and that's what we should be uh, honoring by having an election. So is there no rationale substantive enough to convince you otherwise? Well, maybe you can produce some hypothetical scenario. And I would say, well, that's all very well, uh, but that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing uh, practical things. Uh, and actually, we're dealing with an old model. I think that's the problem. What we're talking about with these all these options comes from a time when people were elected for two-year terms. Now they're elected for four-year terms. And so you have a long time between the vacancy being filled in the next election, like three, sometimes almost four years. Uh, that's a long time to have an appointed person in office. Not so long ago, like, like say, 1970, or into the 70s, people were elected for two years. So people would say, oh, well, let's well appoint somebody, and, and then we'll have another election in 18 months or whatever. So the time has, has changed. And I, I think we, first of all, you have to argue the merits of representative democracy. That's how this issue should be framed. That's what people should be thinking about when, when the issue is on the table, not hypothetical scenarios about, well, if this happened and this happened and this happened, then we should appoint somebody. You should be discussing the strengths of representative democracy, why it's important, and what we have to do to strengthen it. And and that's really what led me to reach out to you, Peter, The what we need to do to strengthen representative democracy, because I think you know this. I agree with you wholeheartedly. The by-election is the, the only answer. I don't even know why we have other options on the table. But one of the things that struck me in the conversation around this particular uh, appointment is, once again, the 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 prospect of voter turnout was raised. And you and I have talked about this in a variety of contexts over the years. We know that voter turnout is in decline. I feel as though now that's almost being weaponized against us. Well, voter turnout is so low, it's going to be even lower for a by-election, so why even bother? Yeah, so, and I say, well, what you have to do, and and listen, it is a big battle uh, to to increase our turnout. There's no doubt about it, because I talked to a lot of people, and they, they, oh, and they shrug their shoulders. We have to affirm the importance of elections, and elections are a way in which ordinary people's interests are brought into the political process, and the voice of the people, to, to use that phrase, will be heard. Otherwise, it won't happen. And so we have to do everything we can to get our young people and, and middle-aged and older people to understand that uh, the right to vote, the right to choose, the right to have a representative is fundamental to our society. And when we produce secondary reasons for not having an election, we diminish ourselves by not supporting a fundamental institution in our society. So what do we do to get there? I think you and I have talked before about increasing the importance of civics in our school system, for example. I mean, how are we going to increase turnout? Well, education is important. Uh, I will say 
I mean, one of the great changes that has happened in, in my time living in Waterloo is that the number of, of women elected to office. Now, why has that happened? Well, a number of reasons. But we had a group that was formed uh, almost 20, 25 years ago that said we want more women to be elected. And so there's been a, that kind of civic activism. Uh, we need to have groups in our society that, that take on the task of encouraging people to consider their choices make a decision, and go out and vote. And it, it starts at the local level, um, and and we, sh- we build upwards. It's going to be a, a, it's, it's a long-term project. <laughs> I doubt if I'm going to be here to see uh, uh, any big result. But I, I, I'm very concerned just generally uh, about the uh, decline of interest in civic affairs. It's a big, it's a big decline when you think of... Uh, the disappearance of local newspapers, uh, like in my, in my community, the Waterloo Chronicle, for all intents and purposes, uh, decline of local media, that, that we need to have local institutions which allow people to have a discussion. And that's what politics is all about. People have views that politics is nasty and so on, and I, I understand that. But politics is basically discussion about what our future should look like and what we can do to get there. And we have, we have to have a continual conversation about why that should be first and foremost in our thinking as we go through our, our, you know, our weeks and months and as we think about what lies ahead. The thing about this most recent appointment, and I say most recent, of course, because we've had three appointments made on various school boards since the last election, but here we are again, and I think this might just diminish voter participation even further, because why bother when somebody else, once elected, just makes decisions on our behalf? Yeah, and and it, it's an insult to the electorate. Uh, and I want people to understand, I'm a big fan of Stephanie Stretch. I was a supporter of hers last election. I wanted her to get elected, and I used my influence in the ward uh, to make that happen. But I don't think she should be appointed to be in that, that position. I think she should, if she wants to, and we don't know as far as I know, uh, uh, whether she wants to run in an election, and but that's what we should have. And, and and I think another point before I forget about it is a lot's happened in the last year, and we cannot assume that what occurred in October of 2022 uh, is all is what are on people's mind in January, February of 2024. And people may have different perceptions about the role of the regional of, of city council in Kitchener and the, the way things are being handled. So we have to have an opportunity for new voices to be heard on the pressing issues that are before us. Very well stated, Peter. And as always, I appreciate your time on the show. A happy belated birthday, and thank you for being here. Well, I'm glad to be 80, and I hope to have many more, and thank you for that. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Peter Wollstonecroft is a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Waterloo. Uh, two things I love about what Peter said. One is when it comes to an appointment, when we decide that there are options other than a by-election, which there shouldn't be, okay? Can we just put a full stop on that? When there's a vacancy, there's a by-election, period, period. Because it's, it's really easy to build the case to not hold the by-election. Well, it's going to cost too much. Well, the election was really close anyway. Well, the candidates are ideologically aligned. Well, we've been without a candidate in this ward for long enough. We can't possibly wait another four months until April so the by-election can be held.
You can you can keep building up that case, but I don't believe we should allow the room for the case to be built. The other thing that Peter said that I love, and I would like to emphasize here as well, I also would support happily. I, I think Stephanie Stretch is a is going to make an excellent city councilor. If there were a by election, I mean, not knowing the other candidates, but I would almost certainly vote for her but that's not it's not up to just me and and frankly it's not up to just the 10 members well the seven actually on kitchener council who voted in favor of the appointment it's not up to them it's up to you and me and everybody else who's going to take the time to vote and i know i know that voter turnout is in sharp decline this concerns me greatly you've heard me drone on about it on the show for years now. We've got to reverse this trend, especially when we look at this latest instance, when it feels to me as though our lack of participation, our low participation in elections at all levels is now being weaponized against us. Well, only 27% of people, of voters, showed up for the general election. We're only going to get 20% or less for the by-election. Why bother? We're letting this happen to us by our failure to participate let's go like do you care about democracy or not do you care about democracy or not i sure as hell do 519-570-2545 star 570 1-800-570-5715 paul good morning morning how you doing i'm all right how are you Oh, a little sore. A couple of vaccinations yesterday knocked the crap out of me. Oh, you know what? My last one did that to me too, Paul. I'm glad yeah. you're up on the right side, though. And I got three of them. So. Oy, oy, oy. Yeah. yeah, my flu okay. shot took the, took a real toll this year. Yeah, now, um, the one uh, guest uh, was talking about uh, how, in his his opinion, these uh, the first place and second place, yeah, uh, in the polls, were very similar in their policies and platforms. Correct. In his, in his opinion, uh, I don't know about the other six that voted to uh, uh, appoint somebody instead of using the democratic process. But uh, I'm assuming that he probably said to them, "Hey, listen, this person was the same as this. This was the same as this. this was... So let's just save some money." and appoint somebody. That was his opinion. It was not the voters' opinion that these people were so close that uh, it doesn't matter. Who knows what would have happened, you know, uh, if they'd have had an election? There's a good possibility that person could win. But uh, but like you say, with a 27% turnout, it's going to be even less for a by-election, and that's because Canadians are losing faith in the democratic process and this is just another example of that where uh, in order to save a few dollars we're going to uh, uh, just say ah, don't worry about the democratic process we'll just appoint somebody here when is all this stuff going to stop when are we going to restore faith in the electoral system and get it right we've been doing it for over 150 years we should be able to get things right. You know what, Paul? I agree with you. I agree with everything you said. And really, this is my challenge to you today, okay? Because I know you're engaged. I know you are. So tell a friend or maybe even two and get them engaged as well. Because 
I will say again, our lack of participation, the low voter turnout is now being weaponized against us. So we have the power to change that. We have to get more engaged. So as they try to pile up the excuses for an appointment over a by-election, at least we're taking this one away from them. So the challenge is ours here, I do believe. Mike, good morning. Good morning, Mike. I've been thinking about this as as you have as well, too. I'm one of the people in Ward 7 who has voted many times in Waterloo. Um, What I think needs to be done is, one, is the law needs to be changed. Uh, No appointment processes, no appointments, if you're in your, if it's, you have four, third, or or second year, two years to go in your terms, there should be no appointments allowed. I can see if it's the last year before an election, uh, there's some extraordinary circumstances that you would do an appointment, but not year four, three, and two. Um, It's just laziness, not only on part of the government, it's also laziness on part of the uh, citizens who refuse to vote. I've always had this idea, Mike, um, uh, if you don't vote, you get $250 extra on your taxes. And if you <laughs> have a spouse with you, you get another $250 on your taxes. So if you have to pay $500, and if you vote, you get a coupon, and you can take $500 off your taxes, maybe that will be an incentive to vote. The other thing I think that needs to be done, Mike, is... Um, we need better candidates. I remember in the in the 90s, they had this voter support group um, to get better candidates going. Um, Mike, in my ward the last time here, there were two candidates running, and it was a flip of a coin because there was no one had any contrasting um, policies or something like that. Was there anyone in, not in favor of building all the bike lanes without usage? No. Was there anyone in favor of cutting back on spending? No. And I think there's a lot of frustration here when we have activists instead of ordinary people being uh, sitting on councils and school boards. And I think that's where you're getting some of the uh, voter apathy from. All right, Mike. I appreciate the call. Uh, listen, activists can and should run for councils as well. But I hear Mike's point in, you know, give me some different perspectives. The more candidates that we can attract, the the better qualified candidates that we can attract, the better for the system overall. We'll take a quick break, come back with more. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. You have to argue the merits of representative democracy. That's how this issue should be framed. That's what people should be thinking about when the issue is on the table, not hypothetical scenarios about, well, if this happened and this happened and this happened, then we should appoint somebody. You should be discussing the strengths of representative democracy, why it's important, and what we have to do to strengthen it. Peter Wollstonecroft is a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Waterloo, and he makes such a great point in my mind around the arguments that can be made, the excuses, if you will, that we will find to avoid a by-election. Oh, it's too costly. Well, the race was close anyway. Oh, the candidates were politically aligned, etc., 
etc., etc., when, in fact, we should be doing the opposite. We should be talking about the benefits of our democratic institutions and how to strengthen them. I'm really disappointed in the direction that Kitchener Council has chosen to go here in appointing the runner-up from the last election to be the new councillor. I I think Stephanie Stretch is going to be an excellent councillor, but voters deserve the opportunity. That's how our system works, to vote her in, should she choose to run. It's not up to 10 members of council. It's, It's just not. It's up to us as voters, however many of us it is that turn out for the vote. An update from the City News Centre is just a couple of minutes away. And following that 10.30 update, it's the men's shed movement in Ontario. The what, you say? We'll tell you. Coming up on the Mike Farwell Show, this is City News 570 and Rogers TV. I read a story in the Globe and Mail last week that I found so interesting. I just knew I had to bring it on to the show in hopes, perhaps with the expectation, that you would also find it interesting. And I'm extremely grateful to our guest who stuck with me when I did a very terrible job of producing, of the producing role that I have here on the show. And we went back and forth and back and forth before ultimately landing here when we could talk about Men's Sheds Ontario. John Peters is a team lead with Men's Sheds and joins us on a conversation. Good morning, John. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much for uh, working with me and being patient with all of the back and forth on this. Well. Uh, patience is not a strong point for me, but I'm learning. <laughs> well, clearly, you're uh, you're excelling in that department. So let's just start with uh, a men's shed itself. What is men's shed, or what are men's sheds? Uh, a men's shed. Uh, the quickest answer is it's a safe place where men can gather uh, to have fun, uh, develop uh, friendships enjoy camaraderie and uh, enjoyable activities and uh, share some of the burdens of life. Where did the idea come from, John? It started in Australia 30 years ago and has been taken over in many uh, countries of the world. Um, It started when it was discovered that men do not uh, seem to respond to some of the social programming the same way that women do. And that um, it works best for men when they can not just sit around in a room and talk with one another, but when they can be involved with some kind of activity, perhaps in a workshop making things, uh, perhaps uh, playing sports. Uh, There are various ways, but men seem to socialize best 
when they are involved with something that they enjoy doing together. So when we when we talk about a men's shed, I mean, this is an indoor place. Typically, does it have to be? It's not like an, a shed on somebody's property, is it? What maybe maybe goes by the name men's sheds, but how are they designed and or operated? Well, it started being called a men's shed because in Australia, where it started, um, where a man goes to tinker on things is the shed in his uh, backyard. And uh, so it can be a place where men gather to work on things together. But I've also known it to to be simply a, a group of men who get together, <clears throat> bring a cup of coffee with them and sit around a park bench in the park. So it may be indoors, it may be outdoors. Uh, in our Canadian winter, it's more likely to be indoors. Um, it can be social. It can be uh, uh, involve a workshop where things are made um, and worked on. Uh, any any number of things. But the bottom line is, when guys get together doing things like that, they get to know one another, and a trust uh, builds. And I've just been listening to a Steve Pakin uh, report. Um, saying that it takes up to 60 hours uh, to really get to know another person well. And uh, so it takes time for friendships to develop, but we need friendships in our lives, and we need more than just one primary friendship uh, because there are times when that friendship disappears for any number of reasons. You talked, John, about the uh, ability for these men to get together in a workshop, maybe work together, collaborate on a project, create something. And and the story that I read in the paper also was along those lines. But you also talked about the, you know, the park bench and the coffee, which is good for somebody like me who is not necessarily handy. Is that a prerequisite? Does one have to be handy or otherwise good with tools to join a men's shed? Absolutely not. But if one has any curiosity about the creation of things uh, by being part of a men's shed that includes uh, a sh- shop work. Uh, sometimes people who have no background training and no particular interest in it uh, find that uh, it's uh, an activity that they can enjoy. And and maybe they learn just by uh, working with someone else and saying, here, I'll hand you the screws when it's time to put the screws in, or I'll do some sanding on that project or whatever. Um, so one may develop new skills, but they, you don't have to have the skills in order to be part of a men's shed. What, what benefits have participants uh, derived from being a part of a men's shed, John? Well, first of all, um, we have this saying, it's somewhere to go and something to do and someone to talk to. And we all need uh, friendships. We all need camaraderie. Without it, we suffer. And one of the recent statistics I've heard quoted is the not having uh, friends with whom to connect uh, is as bad for your mental and physical health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So there is stu- there are studies that say we really need one another to make life uh, complete and rewarding and to keep us fully healthy. 
How many of these men's sheds are there now in Ontario? Uh, We started two years ago. We had seven uh, sheds, and today there are 22. We've been working uh, diligently to spread the good word, and uh, a number of communities have picked up on that, and we have been fortunate to have some funding from an anonymous uh, donor who uh, who's um, great desire is to improve men's mental health, and so with uh, that funding, we've been able to reach out and stimulate interest uh, in various communities across the province, and we're trusting that now that that's begun, it can continue, um, particularly if we continue to to have this source of funding to help support us. That's pretty impressive growth over a couple of years, John, from that uh, those humble beginnings of seven to now more than 20 of these sheds. How has it been able to grow? Like, if how, how does one go about establishing a men's shed opportunity in their community? Well, um, it can be uh, just a half a dozen guys who say, we'd like to get one started. They can go to our website, uh, www.mensheadsontario.ca, and uh, through that they can find out more about it. There are kits to help uh, groups uh, start a shed, and they can contact us and we'll work with uh, that group of men. Or it can be uh, an agency in the community, uh, a seniors club that is uh, mixed, and they'd like to see more things happening for men because often they find that in a seniors group there are two, three, four times as many women as men, and it's not just because women live longer, it's because men respond to a different kind of programming. Uh, So we will work with that agency or with a group of men, and we will uh, come to you and uh, help to show you the, the, the ropes, the how-to, uh, sharing experience from any number of places. Plus, there is this funding that has not only helped Medsheds Ontario, but there's a, up to a $1,000 grant for any agency or any group of men uh, to get a shed started because, of course, there will be startup costs. What was it that attracted you? to the movement. Uh, <laughs> I had the good fortune to go, in, to go to a men's breakfast, and I came home from it. This was out in B.C., and I came home with the feeling that, hey, there's something that I have been missing, and I didn't even know I was missing it. And I said, when I get back to Ontario, I'm going to um, start a men's group like that in my church. And instead of doing that, I found there was a men's shed, and I joined that shed, and that was about seven or eight years ago. And then uh, two years ago, I thought, it's too good a thing just to keep to the Ottawa Valley where shedding started in Ontario. Uh, I'm going to uh, pull together a group of guys, and we're going to go out and get this thing going all across the province. So... um, and so I've been busy at that ever since. I applaud you for it, John, because you've mentioned men's mental health, and I think even just having conversations as men about our mental health is an important step forward. It is indeed.
John, thank you very much for making time on the show today. I really do appreciate it and continued success with Men's Sheds. I appreciate the time to speak to people in your community. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, John. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye now. John Peters is a team leader with Men's Sheds Ontario. You heard him talk about being in the Ottawa Valley area. Of the more than 20 men's sheds that now exist across the province, uh, the closest to us is in Puslinch Township, where the Cedar Lane Men's Shed is one of the emerging organizations. These are also found Brantford, not too far away, then Arnprior up by Ottawa as well, several in the Ottawa area, eastern Ontario, well, more the uh, Halliburton region with Peterborough is one of them. The one that I had read about in the paper is in Bruce County. There's one in Lion's Head or an emerging one in Lion's Head. Uh, the one specific from the story in the paper is an Oliphant, not far, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, not far from Sobble Beach. But really interesting idea that captured my attention because I have I have long believed and I've well, I've, I've joked and I've said that in in my twilight years, I fully anticipate being among that group of men who sit around the coffee shop and solve all of the world's problems. I, I truly believe that will be a part of my social activity, my socialization in my later years. You got to get out of the house and do something. I also fully expect to volunteer in some capacity and maybe be involved with a service club, but I really like this idea primarily because it gets specifically men talking about their mental health, which doesn't happen often enough, and the connections that are made when you come together in this space, maybe you create something, maybe it's a coffee club of some kind, maybe you learn a new skill while you're there, but, you know, we're not the best guys when it comes to reaching out mentioning that maybe we are feeling a little bit on the lonely side or whatever the case may be. So enter the Men's Shed movement. Uh, You can learn more at mensshedsontario.ca and uh, check it out for yourself. But I found it to be a really interesting idea. Hope you do too. Let's go to the phones. Bob is with us. Hello, Bob. Hey, Maggie. (laughs) How are you, Robert? Great, brother. Great. Go blue, go. Anyways... We had that like 30 years ago. We did? Yeah. Remember that No Ma'am's Man Club? Al Bundy? Oh, my gosh. We had that. <laughs> oh, we had it. <laughs> well, why did we let it go, Bob? That's uh, because we just don't know any better. We bro. don't know any better, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I got to run. <laughs> hey, take care. <laughs> All right, Bob. Thanks for the call. Bob is a busy man. He only has so much time to talk on this show. I got to run. I got to run. But we used to have one of these. Uh, I wasn't aware of it 30 years ago, although I do get the Al Bundy slash Married with Children sitcom reference. And I know that we have, I think we call it, I should have Googled beforehand. I'm really sorry for not, but I think we call it the maker's space in Kitchener. So I, I know we have something very similar, not so much focused on, you know, men's mental health and combating loneliness, but I know there is a space where you can go, you can use, uh, you can take advantage. My father did this as he began to downsize his own tool collection because my father was one of those fathers, right? With, like, you name the tool, he's going to have the tool. You name the size of screw nut bolt, he'll he'll go to a cupboard in the garage 
and he's got everything in the old tobacco tins, right? You know these fathers, right? That's my father. And he's got all of the stuff. But as he began to downsize some of his, his larger tools that he'd gathered over the years, uh, actually a neighbor of his had told him about the place in Kitchener that you can go and you can like book out time where you can go in and, and make use of all of these tools, industrial-sized, in an industrial setting. Pretty cool. And then we've got that maker space in Kitchener as well, which are, are great spaces. And, and maybe you, you know, sort of by default, use them to combat that loneliness, hang out with like-minded people. But what this really made me think about, you know, before we get a men's shed of our own here in the region, as I said, Puss Lynch Township is an emerging, the Cedar Lane men's shed is on the books and they're working on it right now. But it just got me to thinking about what it is that we do to maintain those connections in life, right? You get lots of connections at work, usually, lots of connections at school. It is said that everybody has good friends, enough good friends to count on one hand, right? Like, you're really good friends. You might have lots of acquaintances, but, you know, your very best, you can count on one hand. And that is that is me to a T. And, and this is the group that I, since college... So we met there, and not long after, as we got into our working lives, we started a card-playing club, and we played poker on a monthly basis. Now, I'm really sad to say that in recent times, that has really become a, an infrequent occurrence. But that would absolutely be our thing. So we get together, yes, just the guys, and we play cards once a month. Lately, maybe twice a year, but we were very good at it for a very long time. Uh, As I said, I've seen and I even read a a follow-up letter to the editor in the paper about the men's shed story, and it was from a gentleman in Sudbury who said, I've got something similar. We call it the Whatever Coffee Club, and they go from home to home, and one person hosts in their home, and they get together and drink their coffee and, and have conversations. Men's shed movement sound good, or what is it that you do to maintain those connections with your good friends? 519-570-2545, 519-570-2545, star 570-1800-570-5715. Let me know, maybe you can spark an idea for somebody else, the way that you maintain those connections with your best friends. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. The bottom line is when guys get together doing things like that, they get to know one another. And a trust builds. And just been listening to a Steve Pakin report saying that it takes up to 60 hours to really get to know another person well. So it takes time for friendships to develop, but we need friendships in our lives and we need more than just one primary friendship. John Peters is a team leader with Men's Sheds Ontario. These groups that have formed where most often you tinker in like a workshop setting, but it can be really anything as a means of bringing men specifically. But I'm not excluding the women in this conversation when we talk about what you do to maintain those connections. Card playing, coffee drinking, Uh, I don't know, crocheting, whatever it happens to be. What is it that brings you together? Because these men's sheds are doing a great job of improving men's mental health and combating loneliness. Let's go to the phones. 519-570-2545, star 570, 
1-800-570-5715. Grant, good morning. Good morning, sir. I just called to tell you that uh, I've been doing that for about 10 years here. I'm retired, and uh, my neighbors uh, come every Thursday from and friends, whoever, whatever it works for them from 3 to 5 on Thursdays, and I call a Possum Lodge. <laughs> I love it. Way to go. <laughs> so thanks for that interview uh, uh, with your uh, guest there, and I may just get a hold of them. boy, Grant, you can do that at mensshedsontario.ca. And I like it. The Possum Lodge, Thursdays from 3 to 5 at Grant's place. <laughs> Gerald, good morning. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Uh, just wanted to let you know what uh, I get up to. I've uh, There's five of us uh, guys. We get together, and we've been doing it for quite a few years now. We have a vinyl night. Uh, we're from the generation where uh, vinyl was predominant, and most of us still have our entire collections. And uh, so we get together maybe four times a year because one of the friends lives uh, a little bit further away. Uh we have rules about our vinyl, which ones we can play, can't play it twice, and and uh, stuff like that. So uh, we we have quite a quite a bit of fun, a few wobbly pops, and uh, we uh, two of two of the five of us we've been friends for uh, getting on sixty years now. So uh, it, it's a good time. And just one other mention too, at the uh, Reuters Center in downtown Cambridge. They have quite a uh, woodworking uh, wood shop in there where you can just join up as a senior citizen and uh, and you can build stuff. So that's a good place to go to. Gerald, that is terrific stuff. Thank you very much and a good uh, reminder of what's available at the Reuters Center. I didn't know that it was, so you're helping to inform me on that, which is just terrific. And I know that cities do a pretty good job of programming to what they describe as older adults now, not seniors. But I think it's terrific. But these other more organic ideas are pretty cool. And I love hearing about Possum Lodge. I love hearing about Vinyl Night. Way to go. And oh my gosh, Friends now going on 60 years. That's pretty impressive stuff. I love hearing stories like that. Thanks for sharing them. An update from the City News Center is coming up just minutes away at 11. And then let's talk about the two men who more than 40 years after they were convicted of murder and did their time have been cleared of the charges. The conviction overturned. What happened and how did we overturn it? That conversation coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. Quickly to the email inbox, mike at 570news.com. Sean writes, it's the David Durward Center in downtown Cambridge that has the woodworking shop, not the Reuter Center. Thank you for pointing that out. And Ron says that makerspace that I was talking about is called Quartz Lab. That's the one, Ron. That's the one. Thank you both for your emails to mike at 570news.com. Okay, to the next story that we are going to be exploring here on the show, and I'll take you back to 1983. Don't worry, you didn't have to be there at the time, but what happened then 
in St. John, New Brunswick is a rather grisly murder. And the two men arrested, charged, and then convicted with the second-degree murder of that St. John man insisted from the outset that they were not guilty. Robert Mailman and Walter Gillespie said they were innocent of the crimes for which they were convicted, sentenced to life in prison. Robert Mailman serves 18 years in jail. Walter Gillespie serves 21. And then lo and behold, last week, more than 40 years later, they have been cleared. The convictions overturned, and it turns out they were innocent after all. Pamela Zabarski is the legal director with Innocence Canada and joins us for a conversation. Pamela, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for making the time to talk about this rather incredible case. And I guess even as I say that, it occurs to me it's certainly not unique. We have seen things like this happen in our Canadian system. Before we get to that, what can you tell us about Mr. Mailman and Gillespie and, and their maintenance of their innocence from day one here? Sure. I mean, it's it's really remarkable. As as you said in your introduction, um, Mr. Mailman and Mr. Gillespie, from the, the moment that they were spoken to by the police, uh, adamantly maintained their innocence. And um, they did so for uh, for 40 years. Um, it takes, as, as you can perhaps imagine, so much strength and perseverance um, to try to fight for your innocence after you've been convicted at trial and lost your appeals. Um, and it's very, very challenging to have wrongful convictions corrected and, and overturned um, by the Minister of Justice. There's a section of the code that allows for it, um, but it's considered a, a very rare remedy, and you have to find new evidence to to support innocence, and that's incredibly challenging as well. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, you know, it takes very uh, long to do that, and, and, and Mr. Millman and Mr. Gillespie's case is an example of that. Um, both of them testified at their trial. Um, they maintained their innocence. They had a very strong alibi defense, um, but there was information that the Crown and the police had that, that Mr. Mailman and Mr. Gillespie's defense counsel didn't have, um, which uh, we believe would have, uh, and I, I think the minister probably agreed, as evidenced by his, his decision in the case, that would have had a huge impact on the case if that, if that disclosure had been provided. Um, so, you know, it's quite remarkable, and, and they really are to be commended for their courage and their perseverance, which, as I said, never wavered in, in the 40 years uh, that's passed since their conviction. And obviously, um, they, they've they suffered so much. And, you know, we just hope that that this exoneration brings them some, some peace finally um, after all of these decades. How, Pamela, does Innocence Canada get involved in cases like this? And, and what does the work look like? Um, sure. So Innocence Canada, I mean, we're, we're frankly the only, um, national 
organization doing this work. We're a nonprofit organization. Um, so, you know, we always have funding challenges, but we accept applications um, from individuals across Canada who have been convicted of um, a homicide offense, so first degree, second degree, uh, manslaughter, and who have exhausted their appeals, uh, which we interpret to mean have appealed to the Provincial Court of Appeal. So as long as you meet that criteria, which, which you know, we try to direct our resources to the most serious cases, uh, you can make an application to our organization. Um, we have, uh, right now, we have over 100 cases that we are, are managing and reviewing, uh, some of which are on our wait list and some of which are actively being reviewed. Um, and we have a, a team of sort of staff lawyers um, that I lead in, in that, that review of, of those cases. And then we have uh, some really incredible senior lawyers who sit on our board and, and work really pro bono um, to help guide the case team and, and work on these cases. Because as you, as you can expect, um, you know, being a homicide case, they're massive cases. They're often dated cases where uh, a lot of our work is just uh, centers around trying to get as much information as we can about the case, reviewing it, consulting with experts. So we have quite a rigorous um, internal process that we go through. We review cases for years, um, and then we make a decision as to whether or not we believe that um, the individual is, is innocent or, or likely innocent, because you can't always prove innocence with, with DNA, for example. Sometimes it just doesn't exist in a case. Um, but as long as we feel as an organization that, that they're innocent or that um, they're likely innocent and they've been a miscarriage of justice and we can meet the criteria in the code, then we will uh, accept those those clients and work on an application and submit that to the Minister of Justice and, and um, the review group that, that helps the minister make those decisions. Um, so that's really what our what our organization does, and and um, you know there's always resource challenges um, with with being a nonprofit and, and funding. But as I said, luckily we have um, a lot of uh, senior, really you know incredible uh, senior lawyers that work with the organization, and we have the case team, and we just you know we just try to get through the cases as best as we can, but not compromising the the rigor and the thoroughness of of reviewing them. I'm sure that on occasion of a conviction being overturned, as it was about a week ago for Mr. Mailman and Gillespie, there is a celebratory air about Innocence Canada and, and the families of these men. But at the same time, and, and specifically in this case, Mr. Mailman, now terminally ill with cancer, probably only has months to live. As, as much as you would look at this, I'm sure, Pamela, as a success, my goodness gracious, for 40 years, these men have carried around the label of convicted murderer, not to mention they spent about two decades of their life behind bars. I don't know how you can, you know, how enthusiastic you can be in that celebration as a result. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I think, um, you know, the the emotions are, are complicated and, and um, you know, first and foremost, uh, absolutely, it is a celebratory event um, because finally they are being validated for 
what they've said um, from the very beginning and the entire time. So certainly, of course, you know, we um, are so thrilled for them. But yes, as as a lawyer and, and I think as a member of the public, um, there certainly should be a, a sadness um, in in terms of, you know, another example of this happening in our criminal justice system and how long they've had to suffer with this, um, you know, momentous weight uh, on their shoulders, both being in prison for decades. And, you know, a life sentence really is a life sentence. You know, just when, just because you're released into the community, there's, um a lot of restrictions on your liberty and your, you know, your freedom, your movements, what you can do, your travel, employment, um, you know, the, the, the suffering doesn't end. And, and, and then, of course, the mental anguish and emotional, uh, psychological suffering that exists by, by not being vindicated. So um, that's really why we do what we do. We try to uncover these wrongful convictions and, and have them corrected. But certainly... Um, you know, while uh, Mr. Mailman and Mr. Gillespie are sort of in their later years, and and sadly, Mr. Mailman has been um, diagnosed with this terminal illness. Uh, I I do I do take comfort in the fact that it has been corrected. Uh, the Chief Justice of the Court, King, Court of King's Bench of New Brunswick um, offered an apology to them, which I think uh, you know would have been incredibly meaningful, and at least they can have sort of the last. Uh, you know, whether it's months or years of their life, uh, knowing that they have been vindicated. So certainly, first and foremost, um, I think it is it is a, a, a time for celebration. But uh, the fact that these these uh, events continue uh, to occur is, is, you know, heartbreaking. No question. And then that leads me into my next question, because you mentioned earlier information a way back in 1984, when this case was tried and and these gentlemen were found guilty, that there was information that the Crown and St. John police had that the defense did not. When we look back on this, Pamela, is it a condemnation of our criminal court system generally of St. John police circa 1983 specifically? How do we look back on this now? And are there are there ways to fix what went wrong? Sure. I mean, I think that's that's obviously quite quite a, a, a challenging question to answer. I mean, certainly when there is a wrongful conviction, I think, you know, the justice system as a whole failed, uh, clearly failed these men. Um, and this case has sort of some of the common factors that have been identified um, as as contributing or causing wrongful convictions, such as non-disclosure, um, such as uh, tunnel vision, which is sort of when um, the police focus on on suspects and filter the evidence through the lens of um, uh, putting value on on the evidence that tends to uh, implicate them and sort of uh, dismissing or excluding um, in their minds evidence that that supports their innocence, um, and certainly that was a factor in this case. Um, this case was was before uh, Stinchcomb, which is a, sort of a, a landmark case in Canadian law that changed um, disclosure requirements. Um, and so I think you know one thing that that we 
we need to do is, of course, to keep these wrongful convictions in mind and always be trying to uh, change the law and move the law so that it protects innocent people, innocent people um, as much as possible. Um, but even even though that case um, hadn't yet come out at the time that these men were convicted, there's still clear errors that were made um, by the by the police and the crown in terms of information that they that they had. And you know, the crown's job um, is not to uh, get a conviction, so to speak. The crown's job is to present the evidence, um, credible evidence, in a in a fair and dispassionate way. Um, and of course, the crown, as as um, an entity, uh, should be, and and most of them are, um, interested in in the truth. And so, I definitely think in this case. Um, there was information that the Crown and police had that should have been disclosed to the defense and would have made a significant, uh, frankly, would have, would have altered the verdict in my view, um, because the, the defense would have been able to marshal that evidence to further support the innocence of their clients. So I think, um, you know, the, the public awareness of uh, wrongful convictions, the prevalence of it, the causes, um, and looking at what went wrong and, and trying to sort of change the law, um, which, you know, our justice system is never perfect. There's always room for improvement. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's also a human system and, and the humans are not, are not perfect and, and there's always going to be mistakes made. And I think all we can do is try to, uh, minimize those mistakes, um, you know, to the greatest extent possible. It's a fascinating story and, and some tremendous work, obviously, on the part of Innocence Canada. Pamela, thank you very much for making time for our show today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and, um, and, and bringing awareness to, to this, this uh, uh, essential, essential issue in our, in our justice system. So thank you very much. I agree. It is essential indeed. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You, you too. Bye-bye. Pamela Zabarski is the legal director with Innocence Canada. And uh, there you have it. In 1983, a 55-year-old St. John, New Brunswick man was beaten to death, doused in gasoline, and set on fire. And the two men, arrested, charged, and ultimately convicted in that crime would go on to serve 18 years, one of them, 21 years, the other, so about two decades in prison, all the while maintaining their innocence. And it was just last week that courts overturned that conviction back in 1984. Robert Mailman and Walter Gillespie were innocent of the crimes for which they were convicted. Paul Fixter and I got into a conversation about this while we were on the road up north this weekend because I I just find these stories so fascinating and I can't imagine frankly like being put behind bars spending time in prison for a crime you did not commit the Shawshank Redemption line we all make fun of right or it's the ongoing joke everybody in here is innocent these men actually were and I can't imagine I can't imagine what life is like, and I can't imagine any amount of compensation making up for it. As Fixie said when we were talking about it this weekend, he said, I'll take the time back, thank you very much. Like, there's not an amount of money that will make up for those decades 
in my youth that I was in prison. I mean, is there any amount of compensation that would suffice for you? You can't buy back the time, can you? 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. A life sentence really is a life sentence. You know, just because you're released into the community, there's a lot of restrictions on your liberty and your freedom, your movements, what you can do, your travel, employment. The suffering doesn't end. And then, of course, the mental anguish and emotional, psychological suffering that exists by not being vindicated. Pamela Zabarski, legal director with Innocence Canada, joining us to talk about the overturned conviction of two New Brunswick men who back in 1984 were convicted of second-degree murder for the killing of a 55-year-old man in St. John, New Brunswick. Last week, our federal justice minister says that Walter Gillespie and Robert Mailman are innocent in the eyes of the law in that death back in late 1983. There are so many pieces of this that fascinate the ever-loving heck out of me, not the least of which is how you even recover as the person convicted, sentenced, spent time in prison, carries the label of convicted murderer with them through their whole life. I don't know what level of compensation could possibly make up for that. And then, oh yeah, by the way, Let's not forget that there's a family of the murdered who now are right back at square one, have no idea, and have not seen anyone brought to, and I'll use this in air quotes deliberately, justice for the murder of their father, grandfather, brother, uncle, you name it. Utterly fascinating. But how important is it that we get it right. And when we do overturn convictions like this, what lessons are we taking away to ensure that it doesn't happen again? We've got an update for you from the City News Centre at 11.30, just two minutes from now. And then let's have a conversation about our ability to be aware and to act. This is in support of the Food Bank in Guelph and we'll tell you how you can get involved. Coming up on the Mike Farwell Show... This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. recall that on a couple of occasions last year I had to pause because it feels weird saying that here we are 10 days into January 2024 
but it was in the latter months of last year. We spoke with Dwight Storing. Uh, Dwight spent some time in his career working at the Waterloo Region record, back when it was the KW record, probably. Anyway, uh, but Dwight has spent a lifetime telling stories. And so Dwight put together a film documenting the life of Anna Calgis. And Anna was just, she's a pretty central figure in Kitchener's history of helping the marginalized, helping the most vulnerable. And, and Anna kind of did it in her own way, without any real formal agency attached. She was also known as the Snake Lady. So when Dwight created this film, there was going to be a screening at the Princess in Waterloo. And so we talked to him on occasion of that premiere of the story that he had put together about Anna. And then not long after, uh, we spoke with, I believe it was John Newfeld from the House of Friendship, because Dwight's film was going to be screened at the Registry Theatre, followed by a conversation around the ideas in the film and the stories that still resonate today. Anna was a, a figure in, in our community going back about four decades now, and, and she has long passed. But the idea is that film uh, continues to spark conversation. And wouldn't you know, our friends and neighbors just down Highway 7 in Guelph are also using Dwight's film, Anna Calgis, The Untold Story, as an opportunity to raise some awareness and inspire us to action in the city of Guelph. Carolyn McLeod McCarthy is the managing director of the Guelph Food Bank and joins us for a conversation. Carolyn, good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you for so much for having us on. It is an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on and, and get the opportunity to talk about these really important issues. And I wonder, because I, I spent so much time talking about the film itself, how does this documentary become the catalyst for you now also at the Guelph Food Bank to have an important community conversation? Well, and that's a great question. And the answer is she was so inspiring. One person made such a difference in the lives of so many in a community. And yet the conversation now turns to, well, why do we have a tent city in Kitchener? And the event here in Guelph is called In Our Backyard because we are now having the same issue. We have our homeless and poverty-stricken neighbors in need creating the same tent city in our downtown. How did it come to this? How did one person, Anna Caldas, make such a difference in the lives of so many, and yet as a community, we're now looking at tent cities? What happened? Where's the gap? And we need to start the conversation to figure out what we need to do as a community to do what Anna Caldas was able to do by herself. That is really well said. One of the other uh, speakers, in fact, the keynote speaker at your event is MPP for Guelph and Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. What are you hoping to hear? What kind of perspective can he bring to this event next Wednesday? Well, what he's uh, so he's uh, he's a great champion for Guelph, and uh, he's a great champion for us here at the Guelph Food Bank, and he's a real advocate for those in need here in our city. And so what he's asked us to do um, as a community is, can is there a way we can start a grassroots movement to really bring the issues to the forefront 
And as voters, what can we do to vote in the right people who will make the necessary changes we need to make in order to alleviate a lot of this this growing issue we have in Guelph? Can you take me through, walk me through what does happen with the In Our Backyard event next Wednesday night at the Bookshelf Cinema in Guelph? So it's nice. We have a catered event. So Majida's uh, Cafe and Bistro is catering the event. Yum. And we, um, after a meet and greet and eating a few nibbles, we will watch in a, we will watch the film. Following the film, we will have a panel discussion. So we actually have um, people from Royal City Missions, Wyndham House, Wellington County Housing Services, as well as the Guelph Food Bank, to um, start the conversation. How does this affect us? How does this affect our social services? Because the need has grown exponentially over the last few years, and there's no end in sight. We need to be able to stop this and uh, try to reverse it. It would be great to be out of a job um, if we can solve these issues. But we have to get the conversation started. So we have a panel of um, social groups that um, will speak to how it affects um, different areas of the community. And then we will have a Q&A with Dwight Storing. Um, the director of the film, as well as um, a gentleman who um, has now got a roof over his head, but he was homeless for six years in his 50s. And we'll speak to the issues that he faced um, with housing and all the social services here in Guelph. So we have someone who's lived it. And that's the perspective we also need to hear and understand what changes need to be made moving forward. Can you share with us, Carolyn, the pressures that you are under at the food bank in Guelph as you try to deal with this growing gap that we've talked about in terms of what Anna was able to do on her own and what we're unable to do as a community? We see how great the need is. How is that impacting operations at the food bank? So we're seeing a, quite a big need. We're seeing a growing need, and it's unsustainable if the trend keeps growing. So if we take a look at 2021 versus 2023, we saw a, an increase of 120%. That is more than double the people coming through the doors. During that time, we have also opened or have new locations um, that we support here at the Guelph Food Bank. So we are a hub and we help um, supply food to eight other locations in Guelph, which means we can get food closer to where people live in the city. And we're even looking at opening two more locations, maybe even three to address the need, but get food closer to where people live. But it's a growing problem. When will it stop? And how do we stop it? What are you hoping next week's event will accomplish? Getting the conversation started because it seems to be that the um, you know if we take a look at local governments and we well the federal government all the way down to our local government it's what conversations are we having in order to alleviate the problem so where does the problem start how do we address it because right now we're the band-aid solution right we're supporting those in need but how do we help them from the root what is the root issue and how do we fix that Because if we can solve it at the root of the issue, maybe, just maybe, we don't have to rely so much on social services like ours. 
I know that next week's event at the Bookshelf Cinema in downtown Guelph also acts as a bit of a fundraiser. How can people uh, participate in this and, and help out? Okay, so we do have um, tickets available still for seats to watch the film. It's a very inspiring film. Um, so I do encourage you to uh, come, even if it's just to come watch the film, but to get involved in um, networking with uh, people in the city who are supporting um, those in need. Um, but the other way they can contribute if they can't make it to the theater uh, next Wednesday night, um, and you can get tickets at our website at guelphfoodbank.ca. There's a banner on our homepage for the In Our Backyard event. Just click on it. There's more information there about tickets, but also on our ticket page, there's a can't make it to the event. You can donate there as well. So if you can't make it, you can still donate to our event. I'm getting the sense, Carolyn, uh, just before I let you go, you know, again, going back to what you said about Anna Cal just as one person and what she was able to accomplish and what we are yet to accomplish as a community. But I, I feel like, and just when I consider the catering for this event, the bookshelf cinema being involved, Mike Schreiner showing up, etc., cetera, we, we are starting to have these conversations and we are coming together with the idea that we're going to come up with a solution here. Are you optimistic that at least we're moving in the right direction? Yeah, we have to start somewhere. And as, as a collaborative, instead of being all these agencies and, and services that are doing our best to help our community, what can we do together? So this is an opportunity to get those agencies and services and people who have some network connections in order to get people together to really get the conversation started. So it's really getting the movement started and where do we go from here? How do we build it? And so we can come up with solutions together. Carolyn, I really appreciate you making time for the show today. Keep up the great work and thank you for being here. And thank you for having me. Anytime at all. Have a great day. You too. Thank Thanks. you so much. Bye-bye. Carolyn McLeod-Carthy is the Managing Director at the Guelph Food Bank. Uh, one week today, next Wednesday, the 17th, from 6 until 9 at the Bookshelf Cinema in downtown Guelph. It's just such a lovely little spot. Guelph, you've done it right when it comes to the bookshelf for sure. Uh, it's a $35 ticket. You'll get fed You'll have the opportunity to hear Guelph MPP and Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner as the keynote speaker. The guy has a way with words. I think you'll uh, enjoy that part of it. And then, of course, you'll get the opportunity to see Dwight Storing, Kitchener's own film, uh, the Anacalgis story, the untold story of Anacalgis. That's Dwight Storing's documentary. So there's a little bit of uh, KW, Waterloo Region local flavor to this event next Wednesday as well. And then following the film, there will be the panel discussion and the question and answer under the banner of Unveiling Realities. So there's an opportunity to network, do some community building, and really get involved in a rather hands-on way in the conversation around homelessness and the deep need that we're seeing in Guelph, in Waterloo Region, and in communities across this country. If you would like to go, and yes, you're welcome to make the short drive to the beautiful Bookshelf Cinema in downtown Guelph next Wednesday night, just check out guelphfoodbank.ca 
And you'll find on the banner there a way that you can buy a ticket, participate in the event next Wednesday. And if you can't make it, you're also welcome to make that donation. I know we have many of our loyal listeners hail from the Royal City. Thank you for being a part of our show. And I hope this is a sold-out event at the Bookshelf Cinema in downtown Guelph next Wednesday night in support of the Guelph Food Bank. GuelphFoodBank.ca for tickets and all of the other information. It really is, I mean, I, I think the easy answer here is because the need is so much greater today, right? Forty-odd years ago, when Anna Calgis was doing what she was doing in the city of Kitchener, in the three houses she had on Frederick Street, all by herself, and if there were encampments then, I certainly didn't see them. Maybe they did a much better job because they were smaller encampments and fewer in number. So maybe they did a better job of staying out of sight and out of mind. But I would submit to you that some 40 years ago, Anna Calgis was able to accomplish what she accomplished because the need was only that great. However, to Carolyn's point from the Guelph Food Bank, as a community, can we collectively come up with the solution to what we're seeing today because clearly we see today that the need is incredible and our big story podcast on the frequency podcast network is exploring that very issue i think in the episode that comes out today but why does every canadian city is the question being asked have a homeless encampment because as much as you might be down on the encampments that you see in our community and think, oh my goodness, Waterloo Region's going to heck in a handbasket, right? It's not just our community. Everywhere we go. I visited uh, Windsor way before Christmas. It was a beautiful day. I remember Paul Fixter and I being out for a walk when we were there for a hockey game and saw an encampment in a park. When I was in Sudbury on the weekend, there was talk about uh, a park near the arena where an encampment had been established. Like, this is everywhere. And you know, if I may be so bold as to suggest, I'll take you back to the conversation we had at the beginning of the show today. And you look at welfare rates in Ontario that in real dollars are $200 less today than they were when Mike Harris made all the cuts that he made back in 1995. I think that can explain at least in part, how so many more people are still struggling today. Because if you're making less when you're trying to get back up, well, you're not really going to get back up, are you? And then Brian called during that segment and shared his thoughts around the housing and the affordability crisis and how that plays into all of this. It's it's absolutely incredible to me. And And I think, quite frankly, and I'd be really interested to hear what Mike Schreiner has to say about this next week, a little bit easier, I'll grant you, in opposition, but the province has failed cities here. I think the federal government, to a degree, has failed cities here. We heard Prime Minister Trudeau not too long ago saying that the federal government doesn't have direct carriage of housing in cities. And yet, now we're seeing, I mean, hey... You can't wash your hands of it. You cannot wash your hands of it. 
So both upper levels of government have got to get serious about this if we are to get serious about fixing the problem. Or maybe, just maybe, we want to keep applying those Band-Aids, right? Because people like Carolyn do the work that she does at the Guelph Food Bank. People like Kim Wilhelm keep doing the things that she's doing at the Food Bank of Waterloo Region. Our Joe Mancini's at the Working Center. Our John Newfelds at the House of Friendship. I could go on and on listing the agencies that are stepping in to fill the gaps. But really, they're just Band-Aids. They're providing temporary shelter. They're providing some wraparound services. But we need a good, hard look at how we got here and what we are going to do collectively to fix it. An opportunity next week to have this conversation with our friends at the Guelph Food Bank on their In Our Backyard evening, a night of awareness and action. Tickets just 35 bucks. You get some food. You'll hear Mike Schreiner speak. You'll get to watch... Dwight Storing's documentary, Anna Cal, just the untold story, and then be a part of the Q&A. You can get a ticket at guelphfoodbank.ca. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Time for the local business spotlight on City News 570. And joined this morning by Wes Cowan, a licensed insolvency trustee and senior vice president with MNP Financial. Wes, good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. I hope the holidays were restful. Uh, well, <laughs> that's debatable. <laughs> as restful as can be, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> For sure. Uh, Wes, I wanted to talk about the most recent Ipsos Consumer Debt Index survey, which showed Canadians' feelings about their debt situation. What did we learn? Yeah, so this is the uh, the next quarter, and we've been doing this for about five years now, kind of getting a sense of how Canadians are feeling about things, and, and the re- both the reality and their perception of the future. And things are not getting better, unfortunately. We're, uh, we What we noted was that there's now about 63% of the respondents said they were concerned about their ability to repay their debts. That's up a couple percentage points. And as well, up a couple percentage points are those that regret the amount of debt they've taken on in their lives. Uh, and and whether they'd be able to repay it. And in fact, a rising proportion of people uh, over the past five years have been saying that their debt situation is getting worse, not better. How many people responded to this survey saying they're only making the minimum payments on their credit card? Yeah, so about 26% of people uh, said that, and that is actually an increase as well. That's a 5% increase uh, in the last couple of years on that point. So, you know, that is a concern. It means that for a lot of people, they're just kind of treading water because when you make the minimum payment on your credit card, the balance doesn't really go down a whole lot. It's just addressing the interest. Yeah, that one makes me shudder a little bit. And at 26%, so basically we're talking one in four people only making those minimum payments. Exactly. Yeah. So then that's, I mean, it may be a function too of, you know, that with inflation, people are finding that their uh, their budget is squeezed. And so they don't have a lot of extra money to be able to put towards those debts to try to knock them down faster. Uh, but, you know, it is a bit of a circular thing because unfortunately, inflation is still continuing to rise. And the more we have to put out to buy things, uh, the less than we have to service our debts with. So it, it could be a problem for some people going down the road. No question. And so these budgetary pressures that we're feeling, Wes, and how we're, you know, attempting to deal with them, maybe making that minimum payment, et cetera. But I'm sure this has got an impact on our mental health as well. Does your survey determine what those impacts on our mental health may be? 
Yeah, so this is something we started exploring a couple of quarters ago, uh, just trying to see, you know, in sort of the post-pandemic period, like how this is affecting people uh, and and in terms of their interactions with others, their their own feelings about their situation and so forth. And so we've got some pretty striking results from the most recent Ipsos survey. Uh, so about 60% of people do report that their debt situation causes them anxiety, uh, understandably, if they're under stress, trying to be able to pay uh, for things and just general stress, about 59%. So, you know, whether people categorize it as anxiety or stress, uh, that may be a difference from person to person, but it's about the same, about 60% roughly. Uh, and then for a lot of people, they're feeling a sense of isolation. Uh, about 48% of people responded that way because they feel like they can't go and do things that they would otherwise do because they just don't have the money to do it or they feel curtailed by their debt situation. And so that means that maybe they're not going and, and doing things with others that they might other, otherwise do. And so that's making them feel, again, kind of isolated. Now it's sort of dead isolation. In the past, it was isolation because we had to because of COVID. Now it's because people just don't have the funds to be able to do what they want to do. And the other impact, too, uh, in terms of mental health is just general embarrassment. People feel quite alone when they are faced with debt problems, and they think that they may be the only people out there like this, and they beat themselves up a lot over it. And of course, the reality is, uh, as we can tell from these results, there's lots of other folks out there in the same boat. And, and hopefully people uh, have the ability then to reach out and, and get some help with it and realize that they are not alone in these situations. That is the key, isn't it, Wes, that there is help available in these situations. Absolutely. And uh, so there's no, no point in sitting, uh, you know, uh, wondering what to do. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, people, human psychology, you always assume that uh, worst case scenario, you imagine things are probably a lot going to be worse than they are. And when you get some information, some knowledge about how things really are, it usually makes you feel a lot better. Wes, it's always great to get your perspective on the show. Thank you very much for being here. You're very welcome. Take care. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wes Cowan is a licensed insolvency trustee and senior vice president with MNP Financial. You can look them up online at mnp.ca or give them a call at 310-DEBT. The local business spotlight, where your business comes first on City News 570. Take out the papers and the trash. Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust out with that broom. Get all that garbage out of sight. Or you don't go out Friday night. Don't go back. Oh, but do. I, in fact, insist that you do. Talk back during the 12 o'clock talk back hour. That's why. We created it, the consistent place for you to call into this show and have a conversation. Maybe that's just what you're in the mood for. You want to have a chat. Hey, we're here for it. The numbers I will give you in a moment. The phone lines are always open. Maybe there's something that we talked about on the show today, something else in the news that's on your mind. Whatever it happens to be, we had a great call yesterday from a gentleman who just wanted to talk about those shopping carts that end up in places other then the cart corral, and not just around the parking lot of the grocery store or around the building, but in creeks, ditches, you name it. I, I can't figure it out, but maybe that's the sort of thing that you want to, I don't know, call it air the grievance as if this was Festivus. We're also, we're going to play a game 
during the 12 o'clock talk back today. The game is this. How hot will it get? That's the game we're going to play. And I will tell you the temperature now, and then I will tell you again the temperature at the end of the hour. Because I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm going to be brutally honest with you. I am sick and ding-dang tired of the HVAC system in this building where I work. I, I, I'm, it's beyond comprehension to me. This has been going on for literally years. Most days what I do is prop open the door to my studio, which is not a great way to go about hosting a radio program because, you know, we soundproof these rooms for a reason. But the outside noise has to get in because I've been saying it and saying it and saying it for years. It gets uncomfortably hot in this studio. I don't know why. I don't know how. It's not my job to know how or why. It just happens. And this morning, when I got to work, the thermostat on my wall in this studio said a very comfortable 22.6 degrees. I thought maybe, because there have been people, by the way, in this building working on it, in air quotes, working on it frequently over the last week or so. And I thought maybe they figured something out. 22.6 is is reasonable. So I, I closed my door, left it closed. And I came in to start the show at nine o'clock and it's still 22.6. I'm like, okay, something, something's been done. But then I notice, I start to notice that, wait a minute, why am I starting to sweat? Why is there sweat running down my back into my pants and all sorts of cracks and crevices down below? Why is that happening to me? Why do I have uh, sweat forming under my arms right now? I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that the temperature is currently 24.3 in this studio. So what I'm doing, and I'm sorry that I'm not on Roger's TV to do this for you, but you can just use your uh, imagination if you want. And I'm sorry to Devin Robertson, the guy on the other side of the glass, who has to watch me now strip down to my undergarments because I'm not going to, unless I'm going to, maybe I should just send the the dry cleaning bill to my, my managers here at the radio station. Maybe that's what I should do. I don't know. But this is, it's beyond ridiculous. I am sweating. I am taking off layers of clothing, which is just a suit coat and uh, a dress shirt, because why bother getting dressed for work when it is 24.3 degrees in the studio? How hot will it get? We'll uh, keep our eye on the temperature and let you know by the end of the hour. If you want to take a guess, like it's like boiling a frog in here. It just, it starts off normal, and then all of a sudden you're like, why do I have sweat stains under my pits? Oh, because it's 24 point, oh, down to 24.1. Maybe we're going in the right direction. Maybe me just taking clothes off is cooling things down. I'm moving the air around in here. We'll let you know what it's at by the end of the hour. I can tell you it's ridiculous. We'll go to the phones for the 12 o'clock talkback, starting with Grant. Yeah, uh, that. That Schreier guy, why doesn't he approach Kitchener City Council about the the dilemma of the of them needing help? And why doesn't he go to You want Mike Schreiner, the MPP for Guelph, to come to Kitchener City Council? Yeah. So okay, that, about what? About but this homeless uh, problem and then go to go to uh uh, Justin Trudeau, like you, you want you want Mike Schreiner to go to a lot of places, don't you, Grant? Well, 
it, it seems pointless that, oh, no, I'm going to discuss it with the public. Well, why not go to the source? If I'm the city council, if I'm him, I'm going to Kitchener City Council. I'm going to go to Justin Trudeau. All right. A lot of these fools. Easy now. Easy. Well, they do. No, they, now listen. Okay, Grant. They want to drag their behind. Okay, I, I understand your frustration because we absolutely have a problem. And I want to make it clear. I, I couldn't vote for Mike Schreiner if I wanted to because I live in Kitchener, not Guelph. And I am in no way affiliated with Mr. Schreiner, his Green Party, or his office. But I am going to, not that I want to be an apologist for him, but... I think this man has done all of those things that Grant is asking that he do. I don't know that he's necessarily visited Kitchener Council, but I guarantee he's been in contact with the mayor in Guelph about the situation there. I guarantee he's been talking about this at Queen's Park, which is where his job resides. Has he had a conversation with the Prime Minister? Maybe, maybe not. But I think Mike Schreiner has been very active on this particular issue and making his feelings known on it. So I'm not going to have you call him a fool or throw him under the bus in any other way. I understand the frustration, but this is where we're at. Marius, you're next on the 12 o'clock Talkback. Hi, Mike. I want to change gears, and I apologize. No, you change. You do whatever you want. It's your, it's your time. Perfect. Uh, look, I wanted to talk about uh, the protesters, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli protesters. You know, we know what they're all about, so... My question that I have for the protesters and Muslims in general is, um, <clears throat> we have al-Assad killing hundreds of thousands in Syria. We have uh, the Saudi Arabian government killing hundreds of thousands in Yemen. Fellow Muslims, I tell you. And guess what? No protests. It seems to me that Muslims don't care when Muslims kill other Muslims. It's only when they, you know, it's a war with Israel or something else. And uh, I find that very very confusing all right marius that's that's your point of view you are entitled to it and perhaps you'd like to visit your local muslim association and have a conversation maybe that would be the way to go about bridging that divide paul it's the 12 o'clock talk back over to you i think the uh, hot air is a result of you but we won't <laughs> go there right now. uh-huh you be that way yeah yeah listen uh, you lived out in bc for a period of time I did. Uh, are you familiar with the uh, Sydney Island? The Sydney the coast. No, I, I'm not familiar with Sydney Island. Sid- Sydney Island. Uh, it's a combination of privately owned property and also uh, Parks Canada owns a substantial part of it. Now, uh, back in the mid 1900s, somebody decided to bring in uh, European fallow deer and release them in uh, into the wild on Sydney Island. The uh, Basically an invasive species. So they've been uh, building up pretty thoroughly over the last few years. So Parks Canada decided uh, that they were going to call the deer in order to get back to the uh, northern, uh, what, what do they call them? Northern uh, um, the black-tailed deer were the native deer. Okay? So they're going to have this call now, this call cost $834,000 to remove some deer from this island. This was paid for taxpayer dollars. Okay, the, uh, what they did was they hired a U.S. company uh, to come in and call these deers from both helicopters, land-based vehicles, and from, uh, from boats. And 
$84,000. Now, according to the company website, uh, and I'm quoting right from it, deer of all ages and sexes are harvested. However, all uh, adult does are prioritized. Deer are shot from a vehicle with a rifle during the night with the aid of spotlights. Some deer are shot over bait from a tree stand with a rifle during day or night. Night vision equipment and suppressed firearms are used to expedite field uh, procedures and to ensure discrete operations. Okay, now, out of those, uh, let's let's see, in uh, December, uh, they took out, um, let's see, 80, 80, uh, 80 deer. You know, like that's an awful lot of money per per deer, but uh, yeah, eighty four deer. But it turns out that only sixty three of those deer that were killed on Sydney Island during the call were confirmed to be fallow deer. The eighteen of the animals killed in the call, eighty uh, eight hundred and thirty four thousand dollars. Paul, in- Paul, I love you like a brother. What's your yep. point? What is your point, my friend? Where are you going with this? What they should have done is just extended the season on deer on the island, and that way they wouldn't have had all these native deer taken out. By the way, they're using AR-style suppressed rifles with two twenty three. Two twenty three okay, is so, not uh, a suitable caliber for <sighs> taking a deer humanely. Is your point? Is your point that we wasted money on this exercise? Oh, we sure did. Okay. And Justin Trudeau will tell you that the AR rifle is not a suitable, and I got to agree with him on that. Oh, my gosh. 23 is not a suitable firearm for taking a deer. Okay. Can I go now? We paid this. No, we paid this company (laughs) $834,000 to shoot them from helicopters. The... uh, they say we conduct field operations during hours to the lowest uh, uh, human activity. We uh, conduct removal operations. The uh, trying to find the ones that they shot and wounded but didn't kill. They eight hundred and thirty four thousand dollars. All right, could have let hunters with legal firearms here in Canada call those deers, and then it would only be the Eastern European fallow deer that were taken instead of slaughtering all the native species as well. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Four minutes. And by the way, you know, when you're you're telling these little stories, here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. All right. Next, we go to David on the 12 o'clock talk back. Hello, David. Wow. Wow is right. Isn't that a wow? Yeah. Um... I'd like to uh, bring up the subject of the Maple Leafs last night. Yes, uh, sir. Let's talk about them. I'm sure you were aware, but you did not mention it, that there was a little bit of Leaf history last night. Hmm. Okay. Maybe I, I mean, I don't think I'm even aware, David. Do tell. Marner passed the big M in points. Oh, yes. Frank Mahovlich. That's right. He did. He did. Do you know, without looking it up, who's next on on his sights? Uh, I will hazard a guess at Daryl Sittler. Nope. Who's next? Ron Ellis. Ronnie Ellis. Steve Pakin wrote a story about Ron Ellis the other day that I haven't gotten around to reading yet. Said he was an underappreciated Maple Leaf. I loved Ron Ellis. I'll have, uh, where is his article? Because I'll have to read it because maybe at the time he was unappreciated, but... After he he really was appreciated. Yeah, it's at tvo.org. You'll find it there. That's where I found it. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. 
Thanks, David. You have a good day, too. Four points for Marner last night. And when we did our little AM on AM in the AM this morning, because Austin Matthews scored in the Leafs' 7-1 win, I acknowledged that a call I got during the 12 o'clock talkback from Terry yesterday, he might have been on the right track. I mean, maybe they don't care about making, or they don't care about winning at least not championships in Toronto. All they care about is putting on a good show for the fans so the fans keep coming back for the show. It's a hell of a show by the Leafs last night. We'll take a break. Come back with more. It's your 12 o'clock talk back on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570. As we waited for that music to start, because the computers in here are overheating, just like the host, maybe that's why I got a little bit impatient with Paul. How hot can it get? It's the game we're playing on the program this afternoon. After flirting with 23.7, we are back up to a downright balmy 24 degrees in the City News studios here on the boardwalk. Uh, The music also made me think, remember, Friday is All Request Friday. If you've got a favorite song that you would like to hear 30 or so seconds of, our man on the other side of the glass, Devin Robertson, will play you that favorite song on Friday. Just make your request. Shoot me an email, mike at 570news.com, or when you call into the show, let Devin know. He'll take your request right there on the spot, and we'll play it. Fridays will be All Request Fridays when it comes to the music here on the show. All right, the 12 o'clock talkback hour continues. Kyle, it's your turn to talk back. Well, I think it's going to hit a 25.7 degrees in your place. That's your guess? Okay. I will I will right. update at the end of the hour. We're still sitting on 24. Okay. okay. So just, just, just want to say that. Um, <clears throat> has hydro rates gone up? Do you know anything about that? Dude, if I even paid attention to a bill, I just groan at the amount and then I pay it. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I okay. do. Well, then, then, that's, then that's the end of this conversation because we got our bill yesterday. <laughs> And uh, $85, um, but I didn't see a truck show up to my house for delivery, so I don't know where this $85 is coming from. It's, it's, <laughs> it's half the bill. It is I know, I know. It's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, and, and I don't know. It was ours. I'll, I'll say it on air because it was our bill. $225 for this month. You know, that's not far off mine. For two people? We have three in the house. Four if you count the dog. Unless I'm getting that mixed up with my... No, I, I'm pretty sure that... Uh, I get, no, I think that's my electricity, yeah. And you live in a wartime home like me, right? I do. Okay, so maybe I'm not that bad. Maybe uh, I'm just complaining over nothing. Man. No, 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 don't don't say that. I, I'm just saying it may not have gone up as significantly as you think. I compare year over year. So what was I paying last January? I'm very careful about that. It's definitely up marginally based on my comparisons in November and December, but I haven't seen it go up like astronomically. Well, I know that they said that I use 68.7% more hydro this this month compared to last year's right. month. But that doesn't mean anything because the weather was, we were stuck for four days in our house because of a snowstorm. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, so that's what I'm saying. We can't really compare it. But I was just, I didn't know. I was just curious. I don't know if I'm just going crazy or I'm just be- becoming a really old man or at such a young age. I don't know. But that's all. I just thought I'd get your advice on it there. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate the call. You're never too young to become an old man. I promise you that. Or an old woman. Uh also, Kyle is trending in the right direction. We've gone up another tenth of a degree. He said 25.7. We're now at 24.1. Gary, good afternoon. Good, good afternoon, Mike. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. And you, sir? I'm doing wonderful. I'm still listening to the show. Just don't get uh, enough time to uh, call in, but uh, I hope you had a great Christmas and a great New Year with the family. I certainly uh, did, and thank you for that. 
You're very welcome. Okay, so quickly, I think uh, the solution uh, maybe to the problem in the studio is, uh, you know, I know you come to work and you're all dressed up in your nice Sunday clothes, but, you know, if management or whoever's in control is not going to listen to your, you know, complaints about the, you know, there's no reason you should be sweating like that in a, in a, a little office. So what you should do is tomorrow morning when you wake up, grab your sandals, grab a nice Hawaiian shirt, a nice pair of shorts, come into the studio, change into your clothing, and say, this is my new attire until something gets fixed because I'm tired of sweating. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate that. And trust me, by the way, 24.2 now, going up steadily, it must be me. I've thought of that. But you know why I, I don't do that? Because that's just more work for me, right? <laughs> like, honestly, why do I want to go? I, I put in enough time. Thank you very much. I, and, and then I can't come to work in the sandals and the Hawaiian shirt because it's, well, it's freaking winter out there, isn't it? So I am stuck between a rock and a hard place. And my poor colleague on the other side of the glass has to watch me get so frustrated, I strip down at 12 o'clock. So there you go. It's Naked Radio on the Mike Farwell Show today. The 12 o'clock talkback continues on City News 570. Twenty-four point four degrees and counting. I should point out, although I think it goes without saying, that I don't touch the thermostat. Like I'm not making this go up merely for personal gain or to make the story more dramatic. It's just happening all by itself. <laughs> it's all by itself. We started the day at twenty-two point six in this studio. The game we're playing during the twelve o'clock talkback hour today is how hot will it get? Uh, I want to quickly. Read an email from Karen to Mike at 570news.com. I absolutely love it. We were talking uh, at 1130 about the upcoming event next Wednesday at the Bookshelf Cinema in downtown Guelph in support of the Guelph Food Bank. You can learn more at guelphfoodbank.ca. But there is clearly tremendous need in the community. We've seen homeless encampments. I think we're going to have to get used to seeing them. Karen's email hits it perfectly if you've ever had a move back in with your parents phase yet you hate on homeless people you may need to reevaluate yourself because the only difference between you and them is you had someone to catch you when you fell karen excellently said and i couldn't agree more i did have a move back in with the parents phase thank goodness they were there and thank goodness it only lasted three months because i don't think they wanted me there anymore (laughs) And here we are. All right, back to the phones. It's the 12 o'clock talk back. Christina, good afternoon. Hi, Mike. Hi. Um, Hi. Some time ago, you had mentioned uh, about grocery shopping that you'll splurge sometimes on the EB Manor milk. Oh, do I love me some EB Manor. Holy cow. Is that not some serious milk, Mike? Come on now. Yes, it is. Okay, but I have to ask you something. Yeah. When you get it home, if you make it home, with it how do you drink it like you put it in a a mug or like a glass oh excellent question i like where you're going with this i put it in a glass because i like to i like to see how it like sticks to the side a little bit because it's so thick and rich see you're kind of doing it wrong oh really okay do tell drink it from the bottle (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm telling you, Mike, crack that lid in the parking lot when you're leaving the farm. And right from the bottle, my, my God, that milk is good. Oh, Christina, now you got me. I, you know where I'm going directly from work now today, don't you? Saturday <laughs> has become our thing to go down. We return the empties. We just replenish the bag with the full ones, and off we go. Way to go. So you go right out to the source. You go right out to EB Manor and their store? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. On occasion, we've got it from a Sobeys. Yeah. In Waterloo, they have it, but we like to go straight out to the farm there. And, uh, yeah, but no, I just, I cracked the, the, the lid <laughs> from the bottle. You got to try it I'll that way. Consider it done, Christina. I will try it and report back. There you go. <laughs> and I will leave you, Mike, with a happy day. Go Leafs go and go Rangers go. I love it, Christina. Thank you very much. A happy day indeed when it's a go Leafs go and a go Rangers go day. Holy and from one holy Mackinac to our friend Ranger Joe. How perfect. Hey, Joe. Mikey, how are you? Buddy, I am so good. I'm a little bit warm. We're up to 24.6 now, but I'm good. We got to get you an air conditioner in there, maybe. Eh? Got to get me something, pal. Right on, right on. Hey, you know what? Um, I know Paul has a, a heart of gold, you know. I, I'm sure he does. But I'll tell you, when I was listening to him there, I thought I was in a dentist chair getting a root canal without freezing. I just wanted it to end, eh? Well, you know, Joe, and I don't want to. I don't want to pick on him because I really do like no, him I and I, I love him. And I get it though. But it just like we could have got that story done in twenty seconds, <laughs> right? Like the government's paying eight hundred thousand dollars to have this group come in and cull a herd of deer when legal gun owners could finish it, you know, and do a better job for free. Like that's the story. I don't know yeah. why it took us four <laughs> four minutes to get there. Oh, anyway. he's lonely. I don't know, but he's a he's a sweetheart. He's something. He's something. Hey, listen. The only other thing I, I wanted to say is I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that uh, William Nylander is going to be the scoring champion of the NHL this year. Ooh, baby, that is a limb. Yeah, it is a limb, but I I think there's a chance he's not that far off now. Uh, what did he have the other night? Three assists again. Uh, I think that's what it was. And, and Marner had a big night last night. Yeah, true, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, had a, he had a great game, but that's my prediction, Mikey. Maybe you'll remember. Well, you know what? If it happens, everybody will remember that Ranger Joe called it first. I will remember it, Ranger Joe. Meanwhile, I'm going to go back to my blueberry fritter that they brought back and have a coffee. And, Mike, you have a good day, okay? Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Nice to hear from you. Willie Nylander currently with 57 points. Nikita Kucherov leads the NHL with 67. It's a pretty big gap to make up 10 points. And then Nathan McKinnon in there at 66. But, all right, Ranger Joe said it on January the 10th. Willie Nylander to win the NHL scoring title. We shall see. Terry, it's the 12 o'clock talkback. Good afternoon, sir. Hey, good afternoon, Mike. Uh, did I hear right that you uh, your hydro was that expensive? Uh, is that, is yeah. that just hydro or any other utilities included in that? No, that well, I have to. See, I, I have to be honest right now, Terry. I I may be mixing up my water and my hydro, but I don't think I am. I think I, I, I'm going to look up. I'm pretty sure it was hydro. And Annie sent an email uh, to Mike at five seventy news dot com. Says hydro rates went way up on November the first. So Annie yeah. thinks Kyle's on the money here. Yeah, that's interesting because when I moved out to Woodstock Way some years ago, uh, hydro and water were included, but then they've since broken that up. So it, all I get billed for is hydro. Now. And I, have, I have a two-story home, but I, my, my cost for the month was nowhere near that. 
Um, yeah, Just you're hydro. right. That that's true. My my hydro. I'm so I was getting it mixed up with my uh, my my water bill. So my hydro for December was seventy five bucks. Okay. Yeah. I I just looked it up. That's legit. Okay. Yeah. But but anyway, Mike, I know my name's been emptied about a couple. I've times. been I've been cursing your name since this morning, Terry. Cursing you for being I, right. But you can't blame the Leafs, though. I mean, sports now has become an entertainment business. I mean, they took that WWE model. <laughs> I mean, look at the NFL over the last twenty years. How many bad Super Bowls have you had? I used to have stinkers before, like blowouts. Excellent point. Not many, because they know that there's value. Even they'll, they'll, they'll even turn the lights out in stadiums just to keep people uh, attuned. Because if a game's getting carried away, they'll just, um, you know, they'll turn the lights out to get, you know, to make the score closer. And and, and look at what uh, every time you see a Chiefs game, how many times do you see uh, Taylor Swift? Oh, don't even talk to me about that. I'm I just not, want to I'm, watch I'm the so football. I'm so disgusted by that, Mike. You know, the NFL has really soured me lately because they've basically become so entertainment. I know you like to goof on the CFL, but but listen, Mike, the CFL, even though they have a lot of flaws in, in, in their design of, of sport or game, the way they go about it, but they, they are more pure than the NFL is. The NFL has just become a big... I'm just waiting for them to come out of the tunnel smashing folding chairs at each other. <laughs> no, ask someone who's just a casual fan, if that, why they even tune into Super Bowl. I get this question all the time. Are, are you excited about the halftime show? I go, I could care less. But that, that, that though, I think, Terry, is smart because traditionally it's the men who enjoy the game and then you have to have some entertainment there that would be more universally appealing. I, I like the NFL for that. I got no issue there. None. But that's what I was pointing out about the Toronto Maple Leafs yesterday. I think they, they're basing their, their uh, you know, their... Their mo based on entertainment as opposed to trying to win championships. I don't think winning is there. Yeah, and I, that's what I said this who, morning. Who I think cup, who won the cup two years ago? Is he, does anybody even remember? Tampa Bay. No, it was, it was Colorado Avalanche. See, there you go. Mike, uh, two years ago. <laughs> yeah, it was Colorado Avalanche. They beat Tampa in the final. Tampa oh. won two, but then Colorado in the last year was Vegas. See, there's my point exactly. Like nobody, even if the least won the. I cup, thought Tampa won three. They only got they to three. They won. lost the third one. They, they they went to the final on the third and they lost right. Colorado. But but the, my point, Mike, is it's all about entertainment and and I know Lisa brought it up yesterday. If they won the cup, the city would go bananas. Yeah, it would last for like a week, and then uh, two or three weeks after that, nobody would care. Nobody would remember. So. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I would I will I'll fight you, you on that. One. The, and you're a hockey guy, Mike. You couldn't even remember who won the cup two years. No, ago. no, but it, you, but you're saying they're not going to forget in Toronto. They might forget elsewhere, but they'll never forget in Toronto. I can tell you right now, the last time the Kitchener Rangers won the Memorial Cup was 2003. Last time they were there was 2008. Like I, because those are my teams, right? Yeah, I know you got excited about it, but the, 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 does it change your life today? Like I know it was no, like, it does. Uh, 20, but you, that, that wasn't that, that wasn't where you started. Does it change my life? I'm just saying when you're a fan of the team, you're going to remember. So don't try telling me that the city of Toronto will go nuts when the Leafs win the Stanley Cup, or if the Leafs win the Stanley Cup, and then they're going to forget about it in a week. That will not happen in Toronto. It might happen in Vancouver. It might happen in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, but it won't happen in Toronto. We know the last time they won was 1967. Well, I hope for that, for their sake, that they would. I'd like to see that, but uh, I just want to see how long it would last, just just, just to make another point. But anyway, Mike, I don't want to keep you here too long, but have, right. a, have yourself a good day, all right? Thanks, Terry. Appreciate the call. Good to hear from you. Last time the Blue Jays won the World Series was 1993. We remember for the teams that matter to us, and I'm sorry, as much as I admire Gabriel Landeskog, the former Kitchener Ranger, 
and the Colorado Avalanche. I, yeah, you're right. I forgot that they won the Stanley Cup two years ago. Uh, just on the sports thing, you want to talk about entertainment and sports. One of my favorite things, one of my absolute favorite things is a good old-fashioned coach rant. I know this isn't politically correct anymore. You know, coaches losing their minds on the bench or on the sidelines and throwing things around and whatever, but I like the passion. And do I ever like a coach that's not going to pull any punches in telling it like it is? And if you didn't hear it, I'm going to let you hear the whole thing. It's just under two minutes total. During all news mornings with Mark Douglas and Christine Clark, we got a little hint at how upset Raptors head coach Darko Ryakovich was after last night's game. The L.A. Lakers got so many chances to go to the foul line compared to Toronto. Toronto got 13 in the whole game, and the Lakers got 36. The Lakers got 23 just in the third or in the fourth quarter. It was crazy, and Ryakovich went off after the game. That's outrageous. What happened tonight, this is completely BS. This is shame. Shame for the referees, shame for the... That's, that's outrageous. Thank you, Doug. That's, that's, that's outrageous. What happened tonight, this is completely BS. This is shame. Shame for the referees, shame for the league to allow this. 23 free throws for them, and we get two free throws in, in the fourth quarter. Like, how to play the game. I, all, I understand uh, respect for all stars and all of that, but we have star players on our team as well. How's possible is Scotty Barnes, who is all-star caliber player in this league, he goes every single time to the rim with force and trying to get, get uh, to, to the rim without flopping and, and not trying to get foul calls. He gets two uh, free throws for the whole game. How's that possible? How are you going to explain that, that to me? They had to win tonight? If that's, if that's the case, just let us know so we don't show up for the game. Just give them a win. But that, that was not fair tonight. And this is not happening first time for us. Scotty Barnes is going to be all-star. He's going to be the face of this league. And what, what's happening over here during whole season, I've been holding it back, it's a complete crap. There is no explanation. They just, they just come up there, they review what, and they see what they want to see. They don't want to hear us what we got to say. They don't want to hear the players. They, 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 they don't just want to protect us. Over again, the they got 36 free throws, 23 free throws in, in the fourth quarter. What are we talking about? What are we talking about? How are we going to supposed to play? It's happening a lot. But I'm telling our guys, be professional. Keep fighting. Keep going for the next one. But until when? For how long? Raptors coach Darko Ryakovich, who might just have become my favorite head coach anywhere. Oh, that's a good one. The 12 o'clock talk back hour continues on the Mike Farwell show. Stay with us. This is City News 570. will we cross cross the 25 degree threshold in the studio before one how hot will it get we started the day at 22.6 currently sitting at an incredible 24.9 degrees going back to annie's email about hydro rates she says most of us are turning our thermostats down to conserve so enjoy the heat maybe if you're doing that, you should just come here for four hours every day. Clearly, we have money to burn. And imagine how much warmer it will get with all of us in the studio. It's the 12 o'clock talk back, 519-570-2545. Star 570, 
1-800-570-5715. Gabe, good afternoon. Hello, Mike. Uh, good afternoon and happy new year to you. Happy new year to you as well. Thank you. Uh, Mike, uh, I basically would just uh, bring back that point of the gentleman who was talking about the deer call. And uh, he, I guess he brought one point out of the whole discussion. And I, I guess uh, I know he was dragging it on. Uh, you guys get a little impatient and so forth. But the whole point of this discussion is this, Mike. Uh, you remember 2020, Mr. Trudeau and the ordering council came up with ban of 1,500 firearms which are used in Canada by the sport shooters and, 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 and aficionados. Now, one of the rifles being banned also is and was AR-15, civilian version, not military version, but civilian. Mr. Trudeau had a big speech in front of whole Canada saying, you do not need... AR-15 to take the deer down. Now, AR-15 is really not the firearm of choice to take the deer down because it's not effective. You need a proper size rifle with a proper size ammunition to be human as much as you can. Now, all of a sudden, they hire these contractors from U.S. which come with a fully automatic AR-15 military versions, full-size magazines, not five rounds as what we could use pint they use full-size magazines using the helicopters land vehicles and they are butchering these poor animals there is nothing humane about this they are butchering shooting like uh, cowboys and the gentleman there was right local hunters could do it perfectly humanely and cheaply not for eight hundred thousand dollars plus however the point is this what is good for goods should be good for gander. If we cannot use AR-15 in a sports club because you can, it's a restricted weapon, you cannot go and, uh, to the woods and shoot, you can only use it in the ranch, shooting ranch. If we cannot use it there and it's perfectly safely localized, taken care of, locked up, and all the laws are obeyed, why all of a sudden it is okay for the government to hire cowboys from U.S. with the illegal guns really in use in Canada currently because it's illegal to use their AR-15 other than military and law enforcement, but for them it's okay. So we should really look into the mirror and go by the rule. What is good for the goose should be good for the gander and keep some human cull into that equation because it could have been done very cheaply and very humanely. That's all my point, Mike. Gabe, that is beautiful. Thank you very much. You, you made a great point in less time. <laughs> That's like I started on, on Sydney Island trying to figure out where that was in BC when Paul started. So uh, I, I got lost. I got lost in the weeds of all of it. I thank you for making such an excellent point. And by the way, Gabe, agree with every word that you said. Don't even get me started with firearms legislation in this country. We're at 25 degrees. Don't even get me started with the heat in the studio. Will we cross the threshold before one? Can we get another tenth of a degree in here? I'm blowing more of my hot air to try to make it happen. Uh, The 12 o'clock talk back over to Mark. Hello, Mark. 25.1, Mike. Not yet, pal, but I'll let you know before I sign off. 
Okay, Mike. Yes, Mark. One of my favorite callers on your show is Paul from Preston. Uh, he's one of my favorites, too. Okay. And, you know, I, I feel badly for him, Mike. He's called in a few times. He can't connect with his grandkids. Oh, yes. I, I feel badly for him. Yep. And I just want to say if he's listening, Paul, down the road, I'm sure it will work out. And uh, good luck on that one. All right, Mark. Thanks for that. That's very kind of you to extend those wishes Paul's way. It is an awful situation when a marital breakup leads to grandparents not being able to see grandkids. Uh, One more thing I wanted to share with you today, and I don't mean, I mean, we had the uh, Darko Ryakovich rant, which I thought was awesome. We've talked about the Leafs, but I have to bring this one up too. Not that it's an all sports show, but and I'm going to read directly uh, from today's Globe and Mail because they always have a thing inside the front page called Moment in Time. And it was on this day in 1989 when Wayne Gretzky did The Unthinkable. And this just proves the point. Anybody that ever asks me who the greatest hockey player is of all time, I always give them the same answer. And there is no other answer. Just listen to this. The combined number of goals and assists a National Hockey League player gets in both the regular season and the playoffs is a statistic that rarely gets mentioned. Regular season totals are considered the more important number. But on this day, January the 10th, in 1989, an exception yet again had to be made for Wayne Gretzky, who had by then done such unthinkable things as record four seasons with more than 200 regular season points and hit the 1,000-point mark in just 424 regular season games. Let that sink in. Almost 2.5 points a game. That night, playing for the Los Angeles Kings, Gretzky tallied four assists in a 5-4 win against his former team, the Edmonton Oilers. That gave him a combined total of 2,011 regular season and playoff points, surpassing Gordie Howe for the record. The feat merited mention for a simple reason. It had taken Mr. Gretzky just nine and a half seasons to do what Mr. Howe had done in 26. The very next season, on October 15th, 1989, Mr. Gretzky surpassed Mr. Howe's regular season points total with a third-period assist in yet another Kings-Oilers game that the Kings won 5-4. to four. Mr. Gretzky finished his career with 2,857 regular season points. And in case anyone is wondering, his combined regular season and playoffs total is 3,239 points. 1,050 more, 1,057 more than Marc Messier, the next player on the list. 3,239 points. Who is the greatest hockey player of all time? The answer, of course, is Wayne Gretzky. And ladies and gentlemen, we have crossed the threshold. 25.1 degrees and climbing, apparently, in the studio. Thanks for playing along the 12 o'clock talk pack game today. How hot will it get? Uh, I got to make way for Rob Snow. Now you know is coming up right after the 1 o'clock update from the City News Center. As we look ahead to tomorrow's show, what are we going to do 
about all of these pedestrians who have been involved in collisions with vehicles. We'll talk about it. What is a flight angel and how can you become one? Also, the 13-year-old that saved a life in Barbados. And can we get rail fixed in this country? Do you think we could actually do something with rail, passenger rail service? We'll talk about all of that on tomorrow's show, which will, of course, begin at 9. Devin Robertson is the guy on the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Farwell. Bye for now.